The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available Pro-Access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available Pro Power onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. Today we dissect the oh-so-strange kidnapping and subsequent criminal activities committed along with her captors of Patty Hearst, a.k.a. Patricia Hearst, a.k.a. the daughter of Randolph Hearst, a.k.a. the granddaughter of one of the richest men on earth when he was alive, William Randolph Hearst. Uh, Patty came from so much privilege. She was someone who knew from the moment she could comprehend what money was and what it could do for you that she would personally never want for cash, that her financial needs would always be taken care of thanks to immense family wealth. She lived a sheltered life free from the worries and struggles most of the world faces and have always faced, at least she did, until she was kidnapped at the age of 19 by the Symbionese Liberation Army, a group of Berkeley radicals led by Donald DeFries. Born into almost opposite circumstances, Patricia and Donald's lives would collide when Donald, who'd formed a group of radical militants uh, with some friends he'd met in prison, decided to kidnap Patty in an attempt to make her wealthy family feed the hungry of San Francisco, a step towards the destruction of what he saw as an evil, oppressive American society built on capitalistic greed. Donald wanted to start a revolution, and he saw kidnapping the heir to a media empire as being a big step towards kicking that shit off. And while the revolution never came, it wasn't due to lack of effort. The SLA was no joke. They executed Hearst kidnapping with ruthless efficiency and carried out murders, robberies, and bombings. And Patty Hearst, not long after her kidnapping, began to help commit some of these crimes. People around the world watched in awe as this strange story unfolded. After Patty's kidnapping, as days turned into weeks and weeks turned into months, they watched as Patty transitioned from pleading for her family to bring her home to blaming her family for many of society's ills and telling the world that the SLA was a noble organization. She was proud to be a soldier uh, within this organization. Patricia denounced her family on multiple recorded messages that were played for all of America over the radio, claimed that she had evolved into a comrade of the revolutionary force to fight fascists. Why did she do this? A psychological condition known as Stockholm Syndrome may be to blame. 
Did Patty truly enjoy being a member of the SLA, a sheltered rich girl living the life on the wild side as many have claimed? Or had her captors truly, truly brainwashed her? This week, we're going to talk about some socially turbulent times of the 70s when a bunch of young people across America outdid themselves to prove who could be the most radical, the most militant, the most shocking. We're going to talk about bombs and FBI raids. We'll detail who Patty Hearst was, who her kidnappers were, and we'll follow her kidnapping and following crime spree as it leads into the first trial of the century. When do you stop being a hostage and start being a member of the gang? Going to try and answer this question and more on today's radical, militant, communist as shit, easy Bojangles edition of Time Suck. This is Michael McDonald, and you're listening to Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday, Meat Sacks. Welcome to the cult of the curious, you beautiful bastards. Hail Nimrod. Uh, I'll see my dreams, Lucifina. Praise Bojangles and glory be to Triple M. Uh, may, may, uh, you know, uh, Yacht Rock tours soon be allowed to once more sail the sonic seas and bring their live music to the people. I'm Dan Cummins, Suck Nasty, the master sucker, owner, proprietor of Skywalker Ranch, <laughs> anti-cult cult leader, and you are listening to Time Suck. A uh, quick couple messages for stand-up comedy fans. I have a new stand-up album that is now available everywhere you get albums these days. Pandora, Spotify, iTunes, Amazon, etc. It's called Live in Denver. A fresh recording from right before COVID shut down stand-up. Uh, a lot of my favorite bits performed with zero profanity. 100% safe for everyone, no matter how prudish. If you want to play something, some, some mixed company of mine. Uh, worry a lot less about offending anyone. This is the album to play, as opposed to, say, the Albert Fish Suck. Or, or any other stand-up album I have. Showbiz! No peanut butter on this one, bimbos and hats. So there's that. Excited to have at least one album to prove to people that I can be funny if I, uh, you know, um, want to be clean. I don't have to be dirty. I usually just uh, enjoy it. Uh, also, some bad news. Following my agent's advice, all of my remaining 2020 Toxic Thoughts stand-up tour dates have been moved to next year. Uh, please contact the venues directly for refund and transfer policies. Uh, it's just simply too hard in the current environment, not knowing what areas are going to be locked down uh, and when things keep changing so fast and I don't want to get COVID out on the road, be stuck away from my family, stuck away from the podcast studio here, start missing episodes as I struggle to get home. I don't want to end up stuck across the country for two weeks because my temperature spikes at the airport and now I can't catch my flight back to, uh, back to Coeur d'Alene, uh, back to Spokane and then, and then driving over to Coeur d'Alene. You get it. And, and I, uh, and I also just, um, you know, I, I don't want to perform in, in a room full of masks. I want to see your faces. I want to know if you're smiling or scowling. You know, a lot of, a lot of stand-up for me is kind of, you know, reading the room and engaging the, the cadence and the tempo a little bit based on that. I don't shift my content, but, you know, I feed off of, of what I see body language. And it's not just laughs uh, coming back. And I, and I just, I don't know. It just sounds like a nightmare. And I've talked to a bunch of comic friends and they say, not fun. Not, not fun to do stand-up in the current uh, club environment. So I'm hoping shit clears up. By 2021, and uh, the new tour, all the dates are already lined up. It's already, everything's been moved. Uh, there should be replacement dates for all the dates I was going to do in 2020. And really, really, fingers crossed, hoping it's going to happen. Optimistic it will. Sorry again if, if this uh, messed up your plans. And uh, thanks for continuing to listen to me podcast, because I do love this as well. Okay, so also got some new hats in the store at badmagicmerch.com. Check those out. No Frankenstein-sized hats. Uh, that will fit like a, a giant head like mine at the moment, but hats that will fit 99% of you. Thanks to Logan Keith, Art Warlock, for making them look oh so good. 
And uh, and last thing before diving in, today's story is set mainly in Central California and uh, heart goes out to thousands of people recently displaced by so many crazy fucking fires going on. Ah, man, crazy storms out in the Midwest, crazy fires on top of everything else this year. I'm recording this on Thursday, August 20th. Hopefully by the time you hear it, these fires are contained. Now, let's get to sucking one hell of a tail. Not a ton of setup needed for this one, but a decent amount of info we're going to go go over before we get into the timeline. We will jump into the timeline to get a, uh, you know, to feel for cultural events that that lead to SLA's creation, uh, the kidnapping of Hearst. Then we'll follow the group's exploits right up to the eventual deaths of some members and incarceration of others. We'll cover Patty's life in the timeline from the time she was kidnapped up until the present day. First, though, uh, I want to get a feel for Hearst's family's fortune right, the Hearst family, and, and who Donald DeFreeze was and why he formed the SLA. It's, it's, it's important to know the, the kind of money that Patricia Hearst came from. On February 20th, 1954, Patricia Campbell Hearst was born in San Francisco, the third of five daughters of Randolph Apperson Hearst and Catherine Wood Campbell. And her and I basically did have the exact same childhood in so many ways. While most parents in the 1950s read the newspaper, attended the movies, visited museums, Patty's parents printed the newspapers, created the movies, and established the museums. Normal families voted for or against politicians. Patty's family had those politicians over for dinner. So same. Her parents were in charge of a media empire. My mom worked at a grocery store that did sell some magazines. She grew up in a mansion. I grew up mainly in trailers and apartments. Tomato and tomato. (laughs) She grew up in the Bay Area, full of museums and concerts and culture and the hustle and bustle of a major metropolis and I grew up in a small town in Idaho County that was the butt of jokes for most people living in other small Idaho County towns because we were even smaller and more backwards than they were. Uh, She had hired help serving her five-course meals. I had either whatever my grandparents were cooking that night or had to make my own ham and cheese Hot Pockets or Reese's Bean and Cheese Burritos. Uh, We both had pools. So, okay, that's pretty cool. Sure, hers was in-ground and heated and enormous and cleaned by professionals and mine came in a box from Kmart and was literally never cleaned, not even one time and filled with garden hose. Didn't last long because me and my friends ripped a fucking hole in the thin plastic wall and the water poured out and turned part of the yard into a swamp and mom got real mad. Basically though, we lived the same life. Separated only by time, distance, socioeconomic status and uh, I can't relate to her childhood on any level. She grew up in so much wealth. Uh, Patty the heiress grew up in in just about the highest level of privilege one could grow up in. Uh, Northern California, which is saying a lot for an area that consistently ranks as one of the top three most expensive cities to live in in the entire United States. Like, like if you grow up part of the elite class of San Francisco, you're going to be part of the elite class pretty much fucking anywhere. You know, it's very different than being like one of the wealthiest families in Elko, Nevada, which might not mean shit in, in the Bay Area. Uh, looking back, Patty would describe her childhood as really pretty perfect. It's a quote, really pretty perfect. Uh, how many of us can say that? She grew up primarily in the suburb of Hillsboro attended its Crystal Springs School for Girls and the Santa Catalina School in Monterey. I'm sure both of the schools were very similar to Sam River High School and Junior High, where I attended school. Uh, probably, had, probably had a lot of the same teachers, you know. Uh, she then briefly attended the tiny private Menlo College in Atherton, California, 30 miles south of San Francisco. Atherton known for being one of the wealthiest towns per capita, if not the wealthiest in America. It has the most expensive zip code in the entire U.S., If you want to go to Menlo College, it has less than 800 total undergraduates. You're going to need a lot of dough or a lot of loans and scholarships. Tuition alone is 45 grand a year. 
and increasing by a couple thousand every year. And you're not going to find a cheap place to rent in that area. Uh, that's about, that's, it is about six grand cheaper than Harvard or NYU if you're looking for a, a deal. Hearst transferred to the University of California, Berkeley, a school her family had very deep connections with, several buildings on campus named after various Hearst family members because they've given so much damn money to the school over the years. There's the Hearst Memorial Mining Building, the Hearst Field Annex, the Hearst Gym Pool, Hearst Tennis Courts, the Phoebe A. Hearst Museum of Anthropology. Uh, Phoebe is Patty's great-grandma. We'll meet her in a bit. So let's, let's examine just how wealthy Patty's family is and was. Short answer, super wealthy. Like, unbelievably wealthy. Like, I'm proud of driving around uh, a nice, not fully loaded, but not a base model, 2016 F-150. A little bit of window tinting, you know, uh, leveling kit, custom wheels. I like it very much. The heirs to the Hearst family could each pay someone to buy a brand new, fully loaded F-150, right? Drive it off the lot straight to a fucking junkyard and just have it destroyed. (laughs) They could do that every single day for an entire year and just not notice a difference in their lifestyle. As of 2016, the most recent year we could find uh, the list we were looking for, the Hearst family was the ninth richest family in the U.S. with around $28 billion worth of assets. <laughs> Fully loaded new F-150 is going to set you back about 75 grand. If the Hearst family used their fortune to buy nothing but loaded F-150s, they could buy roughly 400,000 of them or $8,010 million homes. Where did all this money come from? They used to be even more wealthy than this, actually. Uh, the Hearst Corporation traces its roots to one of the richest men of his era, William Randolph Hearst, Patty's grandfather. But the money didn't start with old Willie Randy. Willie Randy was born rich, son of another very wealthy man named George Hearst, Phoebe's husband. Uh, Patricia's great-grandpa George was a very successful American businessman, miner, and politician born in 1820. And George was not born into money. He's really where it starts. He was born very much a part of America's working class. George Hurst was born near present-day Sullivan, Missouri, just under 70 miles southeast of St. Louis to the children of Scots-Irish immigrants. His grandfather was taken off a boat and onto American soil as a small child in 1766. Numerous family members were granted farmland in the colony of South Carolina. George grew up on a farm, one of three children to to grow up in a log cabin in Franklin County. No AC, no central AC, no heat, other than the, 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 you know, the, the, the stove. Uh, his education consisted of some some elementary school, uh, nothing else, not quite like a Menlo College or UC Berkeley level of education. George, like his parents before him, became a, a Missouri farmer, but he wasn't content with just farming. He wanted gold. There's gold in them thy hills, kind of gold. In 1829, when George was just nine years old, there was a huge gold rush in the Appalachian Mountains of Georgia. And by the way, in that word, just to prevent any emails, I did, I did a little extra deep dive in on Appalachian, Appalachian, both totally acceptable people who live in the uh, Appala- Appalachian or Appalachian mountains say the word both ways. Uh, by 1840, most of the gold to be prospected in Georgia, at least with 1840 mining tools, was gone. By 1848, prospectors were flooding to California. They were heading west for some major strikes. Two years earlier, uh, in 1846, George's father died. And at the age of 26, he became the head of the family, interested in mining since he was a kid. He did a little bit of mining locally, not enough to improve his fortune in some substantial way, but enough to get a taste for how much the right strike could increase your fortune and enough to realize he was good at it. He had a knack for it. He was a man with a nose for valuable minerals. 
He did take off for California in 1850. Once the family was nice and set in Missouri, he arriving near Sutter's Mill on the American River over 40 miles east of Sacramento. He didn't find much his first winter west. He moved 40 miles north after that to the Grass Valley and made a decent living running some quartz mines, ranching, and running a general store for a decade. Wasn't wealthy yet, but doing well. Then in the summer of 1859, he buys a one-sixth interest in the Ofer Silver Mine near Virginia City, Nevada. Super cool little western town if you ever can swing through it. Uh, I love that little town. And then the following winter, 38 tons of silver ore are taken out of that mine. It produced a profit of $91,000, close to $3 million in today's dollars just that first winter, which means Hearst made the equivalent of half a million. And, and, and he made that, you know, quick. And he used that money to buy more shares of claims in mines such as the Ontario Silver Mine in Park City, Utah, the Anaconda Mine in Butte, Montana. He didn't just take that initial money and, and walk away and hoard it like some would have done. Uh, he could have done that, but if he did, he would have never become wealthy. He might have been well off, but not wealthy. Instead, like a lot of wealthy people do, he he invested his first big score in, in, in chances to hit more big scores, calculated risks. And he did hit more and more big scores. Then in 1862, he returned to Missouri at the age of 42 to be with his dying mother. And while back at home, he married 19-year-old Phoebe Apperson, a local teacher known to have the nicest ass in all of Franklin County. She was known by more people as Phoebe Sweet Cheeks than she was by her birth name. Uh, Phoebe was a pagan nudist, which was unusual for that part of Missouri at that time. And many think she put a witch spell on George to convince him to marry her. And of course, none of the stuff I said after local teacher was true. I know nothing uh, <laughs> about the notoriety or lack thereof of Phoebe's butt cheeks. I'm, I'm guessing she would be shocked and, uh, and appalled, disgusted if she heard me say that. George would probably challenge me to a duel, you know, defend her honor. Uh, in 1862, the nation was engulfed in a civil war and George decided to skip it. He and Sweet Cheeks, uh, kidding, he and Phoebe uh, turned their eyes away from the strife of North versus South and they just uh, headed back West to continue building his fortune. They settled in San Francisco, had their only child, William Randolph Hearst, old Willie Randy, in 1863. George continued to reinvest his money. He founded a number of mining operations, including the highly successful Homestake Mine in the Black Hills of South Dakota. That mine didn't stop producing gold until 2001. This, this one mine, one of many George would own at least a large percentage of, produced more than 40 million troy ounces of gold during its lifetime. Gold was just over $2,000 an ounce the other day, 40 million ounces times 2,000, that's $80 billion. George also began a career in politics shortly after returning West. He was elected to the California State Assembly in 1864, one of a dozen men representing San Francisco. In 1880, he bought the San Francisco Examiner, or if you believe the legend, he won it gambling. Uh, so it was given to him to cover some gambling debts. This will become the flagship of the Hearst Media Empire. George himself will never really care about it. Never really be a, a, a big newspaper guy. His son, oh shit. Uh, George gets appointed to be a U.S. Senator in 1886 to fill a vacancy and later that year is elected as a Democrat. He'll remain a Senator until his death in 1891. And he also put his son, Willie Randolph, in charge of the Examiner in 1887, four years before his death. And what's Phoebe doing during all this? Living luxuriously. Uh, she's traveling around Europe, traveled around numerous times beginning in 1873. She split time between uh, a variety of lavish Hearst homes in the Bay Area. She spoiled little Willie Randy. George would say about his son, there's only one thing that's sure about my boy. When he wants cake, he wants cake. And he wants it now. And I noticed that after a while, he gets the cake. 
Nice. Nice. Uh, who doesn't want that kind of childhood? Kind where you always get the fucking cake. Uh, Phoebe funded all sorts of buildings for various educational uses. As you already know, she became a major benefactor to the University of California, Berkeley. She served as its first female regent, remaining on the board from 1897 until her death in 1919. Now let's look and see how Patty's grandpapa, Willie Randy, took the Hearst fortune to even greater heights than his father. Uh, first, before he started building the fortune, he parted his ass off at Harvard and wasted some of his parents' money. Young Willie Hearst was expelled after two years of college for antics ranging from sponsoring massive beer parties in Harvard Square to sending chamber pots, a.k.a. turd buckets, to his professors with their images drawn into the bottom of the bowls. Pretty sweet. Spoiled asshole rich kid or American hero. Maybe both. I'd love to go into great detail regarding how he transformed his father's newspaper into a national media empire, but that would, uh, that would require a suck on Willie himself. We should probably do one one of these days. Uh, this particular Hearst also played a large part in the criminalization of marijuana in America. He's a bit of a villain, using his vast media empire to uh, publish a lot of reefer madness propaganda bullshit. That's, that's a tale for another day. Uh, the short version of how he grew his money further is by the 1920s, after taking control of the Examiner in 1887, which was actually struggling when he took it over, Willie Randy owned the first nationwide media chain, which included Harper's Bazaar, the New York Morning Journal, Good Housekeeping. His empire became notorious for its quote-unquote yellow journalism. I talked about this a bit in my TEDx talk. Yellow journalism is a sensationalist, lurid style of reporting, the kind that we're just used to now. The majority of journalism now is, I would say, yellow journal journalism. Less emphasis on fact, more emphasis on opinion, spin, and extreme you know, eye-catching headlines. And because of this new, more entertaining style of presenting the news, Hearst Publications attained an unprecedented amount of circulation. At its height, it's estimated that one in five Americans were reading Hearst papers every fucking day. Uh, William would also invest in radio, movies, and television. In 1903, the 34-year-old Hearst married the 20-year-old Millicent Veronica Wilson. Millicent would give birth to five sons, George Randolph Hearst, William Randolph Hearst Jr., John Randolph Hearst, they just love rotating the same names, these egomaniacs. And then the twins, Randolph, another Randolph, Apperson Hearst and David Whitmire Hearst. Uh, Randolph Apperson is Patty Hearst's father and was born in 1950. Uh, let's talk about his dad a little bit more though. By 1925, uh, Hearst had established or acquired newspapers in every section of the United States, as well as several magazines. He published books, produced movies. Then in the 1920s, he built a grandiose castle on a 240,000-acre ranch on the California coast in San, San Simone, California, 240 miles south of San Francisco, he furnished this residential complex with a vast collection of antiques and art objects that he bought in Europe. Uh, playwright George Bernard Shaw famously described this castle as the place God would have built if he had had the money. It is nuts. 115 rooms, 38 bedrooms, over 40 bathrooms, a theater, a beauty salon, a giant indoor Roman pool, giant outdoor pools. Uh, and it originally sat on 375 square miles of private land. Everything was made custom for it. You know, this isn't fucking particle board. This is like exotic marble. You know, all these crazy expensive materials. At the peak of his fortune in 1935, Willie fucking Randy owned 28 major newspapers, 18 magazines, several radio stations, movie companies, news services. The Great Depression of the 1930s would seriously weaken his financial position, but he would rebound, you know, in the, in the 40s. And then he died in 1951 at the age of 88. 
And Patricia's father, Randolph Apperson Hearst, was the last surviving of his five boys and the one that would inherit his father's vast fortune. When Randolph died in 2000, his estate was valued at $1.8 billion. So, you know, it wasn't as big as it was at one time, but still, these are billionaires. Uh, the modern-day Hearst Corporation, which owns 46 newspapers, 340 magazines around the globe, and has valuable stakes in cable channels like ESPN, Lifetime, A&E. Uh, it's currently chaired by William Randolph Hearst III. God, they love to keep the names in this family. Uh, Patty's second cousin, uh, her father's cousin's son. The Hearst Corporation is the rare private corporation with over $10 billion in annual revenue. Okay, so sorry for the, the detour there, but an important part of the story is why the SLA chose to kidnap Patty Hearst. They chose her because in the Bay Area, her name was synonymous with extreme wealth, old money. If you're a communist, revolutionary type living in the Bay Area, you know all about the Hearst family, and they represent to you the worst of capitalistic greed. Now let's talk about these people who oppose capitalism, especially the kind of capitalism the Hearst practice and when I say opposed, I mean, you know, committed to committing serious fucking violence and what law enforcement deemed domestic terrorism. Easy, Bojangles, easy. Sometimes we have to talk about communism. All right, you know that. Good boy, calm, calm down. Painting the decade of the 70s with broad strokes, you have to mention an economic depression, an oil crisis, uh, the end of the flower child era, and for many of those former flower children, a descent into drugs and various cults. For many, the 70s wasn't nonstop late-night disco parties fueled by Coke and Quaaludes. For some, it was. And they must have had a fucking blast. Sounds great. But for many, it was an uncertain, even exceedingly pessimistic time. Tim Finley, a reporter with the San Francisco Chronicle and Rolling Stone, uh, the man who discovered the identities of the Symbi— Oh, man. Symbionese. There we go. Might take me a second a few times with that word. The Symbionese Liberation Army said this of the 1970s in San Francisco. In the mid-70s, the anti-war movement began to decline simply because the Vietnam War was ending. There was less and less of the mass movement going on in Berkeley and more concentrated cells of people within Berkeley who were living out a lifestyle. In order to be part of this romantic past in Berkeley, you gain status by being more revolutionary than the other guy, by having that superior compassion that motivated a lot of people. There had been a change in direction of the civil rights movement, which identified more with empowering racial differences rather than melding them, rather than integrating society. And there was developing at that time as well a far more ideological slant to what had been a relatively innocent movement. If you look back to such things as the Weather Underground in 1968, they did not attack institutions in order to kill people or rob people or what have you. They attacked the institutions as saboteurs, as a resistance against the war and against the power of the establishment. Had to throw some funk behind that. Some good feedback on last week's sound bits. Uh, makes a little stories a little more entertaining in a moment. Tell Nimrod. Uh, whereas the ethos of the 60s counterculture in San Francisco had been about civic participation, marching for civil rights, protesting at sit-ins, that sort of thing, the 70s was all about who could be the most radical. This attitude was held partly due to political motivations, partly to stave off the existential dread of confronting a country that had just come out of a war with no victors and had come into an economic depression, and partly... You know, just to just look fucking cool, man. Can you dig it? Is everything copacetic with you? Because it ain't with me, Jive Turkey. There's a revolution coming. It's going to be dynamite and out of sight. So do me a solid and get it right. Right on, right on, right on. Catch you on the flip side. You know, that kind of thing. Uh, and the race to see who could be the most revolutionary, one of the stars of today's suck, Donald David DeFreeze, was a front runner. Let's meet this crazy son of a bitch. 
Uh, DeFreeze was the founder of the radical group that would go on a, a big crime bender from 1973 to 1975. He'd committed plenty of crimes before that time as well. Wasn't a stranger to crime. Uh, a, a man not afraid to commit crime. And a man, when he kidnapped Patty Hearst, surrounded by Bay Area well-educated young Marxist-flavored revolutionaries who had never themselves committed crimes but wanted some of that grit and excitement, he made him feel edgy. And they fed his delusions of grandeur. On November 15th, 1943, DeFree was born in Cleveland, Ohio. Birthplace of my Polish wife. City with lots of Polish people. Ugh! Long history of kicking out monsters in that part of the world. You get it. His parents were Louise and Mary DeFreeze. And he was not born into wealth and privilege, like Patty Hearst and I were. Uh, DeFreeze was the eldest of eight children. His mother, Mary, was a registered nurse at a nursing home. His father, although there isn't much info on him, apparently wasn't as caring as DeFreeze's mother. According to some reports, he disciplined Donald as a boy by breaking both of his arms. Not once, not twice, but three separate fucking times. So clearly, uh, Donald was a bad kid who started off being bad at listening and ended up being bad at throwing baseballs and stuff, right? <laughs> no, nah, I'm kidding. Uh, no, this is true. His father was clearly extremely physically abusive. Uh, DeFreeze would grow up to become a very angry and violent young man. And if my dad had broke both my arms three times, uh, yeah, I probably would have been uh, angry and violent in my 20s as well. And in my teens. At the age of 14, Donald David DeFreeze dropped out of school, ran away from home, uh, ran away from his dad after losing yet another arm wrestling match. I mean, come on. He can't. No. Uh, he did really want to run away, though. I know that stuff's not funny. You, you understand. He, en he ended up in Buffalo, New York, where he lived in, uh, he'd live in foster care, eventually living with a man named Reverend William L. Foster, a fundamentalist minister and his family. Uh, while living with Pastor Foster, he joined a gang called the Cracked Skulls. I'm guessing Pastor Foster was unaware of this. And how was your day, young Donald? Good, Pastor Foster. Uh, me and some of the other Cracked Skulls carjacked a woman in Allentown, robbed a liquor store at Broadway and Elm. Oh, glad to hear you've made some friends here in Buffalo, Donald. Praise God. Uh, DeFreeze was quickly arrested for stealing from parking meters, then for stealing a car. The state of New York decided to give the kid a shot at re rehabilitation and sent him to a state reformatory in Elmira, New York. The Elmira Correctional Facility was a unique and innovative prison at the time. It rejected theories of reform that had developed in the 19th century, theories that inmates should be silent, obedient, spend all their time uh, you know, when they're not reflecting on their crimes in single occupation cells, they should spend it working. Elmira was different. They believed that approaching reform from a psychological perspective rather than a physical perspective yielded better chances for true reform. Uh, Elmira used a lot of what we think as, of as uh, fairly logical, you know, uh, now. Like techniques like, you know, just encouraging inmates with rewards, variable sentences according to the criminal's background and history, education. But that didn't mean that everything was candy and sunshine. About his time in prison, DeFreeze would say, life in the prison as we called it, you know, because it was a juvenile correction facility, uh, was nothing but fear and hate. Day in and day out, I would not be part of any of the gangs, black or white. I didn't hate anyone, black or white, and they hated me for that. Upon his release in 1963, the now 19 or 20-year-old DeFreeze relocated to the Newark, New Jersey area. There he met and married a woman named Gloria Thomas, who had three children from a previous marriage. The couple would quickly have three more children and then struggle financially. Uh, weird, weird. How strange that a dude who kicked out three kids right after being released from prison, a dude who jumped into a relationship uh, where they, you know, the lady already had three kids would, would then struggle with money. If only birth control pills would have been around in the 60s. Uh, they were actually. Uh, that's when they first showed up. All that 60s, you know, hippie sex was fueled partly by great music and counterculture revolution type vibes and uh, mostly by the first reliable and affordable birth control pill to be widely used. Oh, well. Uh, the DeFreezes did not use it. 
and they ended up damn near homeless, with Donald only able to find sporadic employment as a short order cook or as a laborer. And then Donald came up with a great plan to fix everything for himself, at least. Like so many super cool dudes have done that we've covered on Time Suck, he decided to completely abandon his family. Later, he would write, I just couldn't take it anymore. I was slowly becoming a nothing. Huh. I would define someone who abandons their, their family as being nothing. DeFreeze thought doing that could turn him into something, I guess. He, he, he made it clear across the country before getting arrested in 1964 and then returning to his family in New Jersey. Police stopped him while he was hitchhiking on the San Bernardino Freeway near West Covina, California. On him, they found a tear gas pencil bomb, a sharpened butter knife, and a sawed-off rifle. Had all that in a suitcase. Sources don't say what he was officially charged with. I, I can't figure out why he was charged, you know, with anything. It really doesn't seem like he did anything wrong. I mean, he was a regular dude hitchhiking with a suitcase, had a knife, a gun, and a pen bomb. What was he, what was he supposed to do? Not bring all that with him? Hitchhiking is dangerous. You never know what kind of fucking whack job you're going to run into. You might need a tear gas pen bomb. Might need a sharp butter knife. Seems to me like he was just trying to be prepared for getting picked up by some kind of psycho. But the police saw it differently. After heading back to New Jersey... Connecting with his family, he'd get arrested for shooting off a gun inside his basement and for having a bomb. Oh, I'm sorry, officer. Am I not allowed in the land of the free to shoot off my own gun in a house full of children and make some fucking bombs? Sorry. I forgot I was living in North Korea. Uh, Donald would later write, I started playing with guns and fireworks. Just anything to get away from life and how unhappy I was. He was sentenced to two years of probation, 1965. He heads back out to California, makes it to Los Angeles. This time, begrudgingly, he brings a stupid family. Uh, the change of scenery would only intensify his financial worries and his run-ins with law enforcement. On June 9th, 1967, the police stopped to freeze for running a red light. <laughs> this is weird. On his bike. He runs a red light on his bicycle. They ask for his name. He gives them a fake one. And then when they search him, they find a homemade bomb in his pocket. And then in the basket of the bicycle, they find another bomb and a pistol. And DeFreeze tells him this. I love this. He tells them that he'd found the two bombs and the pistol just laying around and he was just trying to sell them to feed his family. And for some reason, the crazy cops didn't believe him. Oh, oh, you're arresting me? Seriously? I, I'm sorry. Did I just leave North Korea for Mother Russia? Is it illegal to find bombs and guns laying around and just put them in my bicycle basket and try to make some side cash, sell them a little bit? It, oh, it is. Oh, oh, it is. It is illegal to sell bombs to people on the street. Huh, okay. Well, sorry, I don't have every single law memorized. Uh, Donald's given three more years of probation. The probation officer who interviews DeFreeze writes that he is deeply troubled by this case. I bet, right? Keep finding, keep finding bombs with this guy. Uh, earlier probation report describes DeFreeze as schizoid a schizoid personality with strong schizophrenic potential who has a fascination with firearms and explosives. Psychiatric officials at the prison testing center, uh, where he is briefly sent after this arrest, recommend that he be jailed because his fascination with firearms and explosives makes him dangerous. Yeah, he sounds dangerous. Uh, and then while this case is uh, going through court, Mr. DeFreeze is arrested again on December 2nd, 1967. I wonder what kind of bullshit trumped up charge he'll have thrown at him this time. A prostitute complains that DeFreeze threatened her with a pistol and demanded money, according to the police report. Arriving at the motel to investigate, the police say they found a pistol stolen from a store in nearby Torrance and then other stolen weapons in the trunk of Donald's car. And how did they get there? You know what? He fucking found them, okay? Is it illegal to be really good at finding guns and bombs laying around? You would think in a good society they'd give him a medal for finding that stuff before kids found it and hurt themselves. 
But no, in the United States of fascist motherfuckers, you get arrested for doing good deeds. Everyone knows I'm being absurd, right? God, I hope so. Uh, DeFries initially avoided arrest uh, by jumping from a second-story bedroom window. He's captured four days later. And then to avoid serious prison time, he rats on an accomplice and leads the police to Ronald Coleman's house, where they find nearly 200 weapons stolen from a surplus surplus store. Uh, and then Donald doesn't get any trouble, doesn't get in any further trouble, excuse me, for a long time. He's, he's not arrested again for another four months. On March 10th, 1968, he's charged with burglary in Inglewood. On August 16th, 1968, he's charged with stealing a motorcycle. On March 20th, 1969, uh, he gets in more trouble for finding on the ground a loaded 9mm rifle with 32 rounds in a magazine. Uh, his probation had been modified months earlier on December 13th, 1968 to forbid possession of firearms or bombs. But still, DeFreeze doesn't go to jail for any of these crimes. Why? Because the police finally woke up and realized it's not illegal to be good at finding stuff. Uh, no. As to why he wasn't picked up and immediately put in jail for these crimes, many have speculated that DeFreeze was an informant for either the LAPD, who in the 60s were beefing up their surveillance or uh, surveillance on radical groups, particularly Marxist and Black-aligned organizations, or even the CIA or FBI, who also had interest in these organizations. And Donald, being both Black and Marxist, did run in these circles. According to author Brad Schreiber, who wrote Revolution's End, the Patty Hearst kidnapping, mind control, and the secret history of Donald DeFreeze and the SLA, DeFreeze was a former LAPD informant running guns to set up Black Panthers. Not everyone thinks DeFreeze was an informant, though. Uh, legal analyst and author Jeffrey Tobin, who wrote the account on the O.J. Simpson case that was adapted into the first season of FX's nine Emmy-winning American crime season, uh, disputes this assertion writing that Donald DeFreeze was a two-bit incompetent criminal who in Los Angeles tried to work off a beef like a lot of criminals do by telling the cops he knew about other criminals. The idea that he was some sort of secret agent for the government is just absurd. So was he or was he not some kind of informant? Uh, we don't know. Nobody does for sure. Seems weird though that he just keeps getting, you know, nothing more than parole, even though he's arrested just continually. Uh, by the late spring of 1969, DeFreeze has abandoned his family once again, finally weighed off his back. Uh, he's sick of, you know, he's sick of, he's sick of them holding him back from committing more crimes. On May 9th, 1969, the Newark police report that DeFreeze and a companion, Ralph Cobb, have kidnapped and threatened Alfred Witters, caretaker of the Temple uh, B'nai Abraham. The police said the two had driven Mr. Witters around with a shotgun, uh, holding it to his head, claiming to be Black Panthers and demanding $5,000 from the rabbi of the synagogue, uh, that they felt that they needed to secure the release of another Black Panther. Ralph Cobb was tried and acquitted, and then a memorandum from the prosecutor's office, memorandum, uh, said that it decided to drop charges against Mr. DeFreeze since they believed he'd soon be incarcerated in California for other crimes anyway. So he gets away with another crime. And he doesn't get thrown in prison in California for these other crimes, but he does get arrested again. On October 11th, 1969, some police officers in Cleveland spot DeFreeze on the roof of a bank building He's carrying two pistols and an eight-inch dagger that he has found. Dangerous weapons he found while taking a leisurely stroll that happened to be on the roof of a bank, thinking about how he was getting his act together and going to do right by his family. So the police, of course, give him a key to the city. No, after he's caught, the police find a burglar's toolkit and a hand grenade nearby. Weird. Donald claimed he didn't know anything about these things. He definitely didn't know how someone would put his fingerprints all over him. He puts up a $5,000 bond and leaves for Los Angeles. And again, he gets away with this. He gets away with doing some super shady shit. Doesn't get arrested for this or, you know, they don't track him down. 
On November 17th, 1969, DeFreeze is wounded in a gun battle outside a Bank of America branch in L.A., finally gets in some real trouble. He's arrested, convicted of having stolen a $1,000 cashier's check, sent to the California State Prison in Vacaville, 54 miles northeast of San Francisco. Hearst country. About to connect DeFreeze's story to the Hearst family. In this prison, he joins an inmate organization called 100% Innocent Guys Who Can't Help Being Super Good at Finding Cool Shit. No, that's not right. Now, the group is called the Black Cultural Association, which stresses African heritage and pride at its weekly meetings. It's here that the intellectual seeds of what will become the Symbionese Liberation Army are planted in DeFreeze's mind. BCA at Vacaville was a group that would take black prisoners and introduce them to liberal white college students who could then talk about the black prison experience in their university work. And many of these college students happen to be very, very Marxist. Two members of this program uh, are William Wolfe and Russell Little, members of a radical political group called the Venceremos, Spanish for we will overcome or prevail, a term closely associated with the Chilean socialist movement. These two yahoos would later become members of DeFries' SLA. Future SLA members, Angela Atwood, Nancy Ling Perry, also visit Vacaville to meet with radical prison groups while DeFries is imprisoned. In the eyes of these young radicals, these black prisoners, no matter what they were actually incarcerated for, were political prisoners oppressed by a racist and corrupt American society. And a lot of black Americans were being oppressed by a racist and corrupt white American majority culture. But that doesn't mean that Donald DeFreeze specifically wasn't a fucking dirtbag. Uh, he didn't get framed and thrown onto death row. He got away with doing a lot of dumb shit. He was a family abandoning violent Looney Tune who couldn't stop making bombs. Before uh, leaving the Vacaville prison, DeFreeze broke away from the Black Cultural Association, started his own program called Unicite, whose stated purpose was a study of the black family. The recent family abandoner is now a family advocate. This motherfucker is too much. December of 1972, DeFreeze was transferred to Soledad Prison in Soledad, California. He won't stay long. He escapes just months later on March 5th, 1973, so he can return to his family. No, he doesn't do that, but he does escape. Uh, very easily. He basically just walked away. DeFries had a good prison record, had learned the trade of boiler repair. He was then able to fool the authorities into giving him minimum security status. And then one day, while he was unsupervised, supposed to be just working on the boiler and some stuff, he just, uh, he just walked out, just left, just didn't come back. After escaping, DeFries made his way to Oakland, California, where he was hidden and housed by two anti-capitalist college kids, Willie Wolf and Russell Little, those people who had visited him in prison. Uh, they took him to the house of 23-year-old Patricia Ms. Moon, uh, Solstic, or Sol a Berkeley student, daughter of a pharmacist, and a self-described radical feminist and revolutionary dedicated to subverting the dominant capitalist pig paradigm of America. For the next several months, Donald Family Man, DeFreeze, and Ms. Moonfuck uh, just go at it like rabbits and also sometimes work on Symbionese Liberation Army literature. Donald lives with Ms. Moon for several months. Through her, he meets Camilla Hall, a 28-year-old Berkeley artist and communist, and a deep dive into Marxist revolutionary thinking ensues. The Symbionese Liberation Army is now officially formed. So let me give a quick overview of this group and who they became, then it'll be timeline time. The Symbionese Liberation Army, also called United Federated Forces of the Symbionese Liberation Army, was a small group of multiracial militants who considered themselves members of a vanguard army. Basically, a small army that would for sure lead America's masses to revolt and overthrow their corporate overlords. Their logo was a seven-headed cobra. Pretty sweet. And the group's motto was death to the fascist insect that preys upon the life 
of the people. Fuck yeah. You know, someone got a real solid high five for coming up with that one. I would love to hear snippets of the brainstorm that came up with that motto. Like what, what didn't get accepted? Uh, okay, 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 okay. I got it. I got it. I got it. I got it. How about, hear me out. Harm comes to the fascist baby who sucks upon the teat of the poor more than a baby should suck. Therefore, not leaving enough milk for other less fascist babies who in an ideal communist society would all get an equal and satisfying amount of breast milk. No, you jive turkey. That's lame as fuck, Peter. We need something way more powerful, less wordy. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Okay, hold on, hold on. Okay, I'm not, I'm not done. How about death to the capitalist spider fascists who spin their web and catch weak, helpless commie flies? What? No, that's, no, that's terrible. That makes us look really bad, Peter. God, who wants to join a revolution led by weak, helpless commie, semi-nese liberation army flies? You're right. Oh, you're right. Give me five minutes. Let me just keep working this bug angle. Let me just keep working this bug angle. Uh, if you're wondering what symbionese means, I didn't mean a damn thing, 1972, uh, because Donald hadn't made it up until 1973. According to the group's manifesto, symbionese was taken from the word symbiosis, a body of dissimilar bodies and organisms living in deep and loving harmony. But they were really never uh, about love and harmony. Uh, DeFries not only came up with the name for his new group of radicals, he also came up with a new name for himself. He's about to be referred to as General Field Marshal Sinkyu. He named himself after an African Mendy chief who took over a slave ship in the 1830s and freed himself and others. Pretty sweet. Uh, the original Joseph Sinkyu, uh, which is actually pronounced a sink, uh, rumored to himself have become a slave trader in Africa after winning his own freedom, though. Maybe he could have picked a, a better name. I don't know. There were initially eight members of the SLA, LaFries being the only black member and the only member who came from a low-income household or had a criminal record. The seven other members were Caucasian, middle-class or upper-middle-class men and women uh, raised in you know nice households, most of them fresh out of college, who then adopted Swahili names and took up arms for the self-styled Symbionese Federation. Nancy Ling Perry went by the name uh, uh, Fahza. Patricia Solistic called herself Zoya. Bill Harris decided to call himself Tico. Emily Harris went by Yolanda. Angela Atwood went by Galena. Russell Little's Swahili name was uh, Osceola. Joe Ramiro renamed himself Bo. William Wolfe called himself Cujo. And Camilla Hall went by Gabby. So the SLA quickly grew to having 18 members along with uh, a handful of associates and sympathizers. And they were, you know, they were prepared to bring America to its knees. Listen up, capitalist pigs. We don't want to wage war. But if all your, all your senators and congressmen don't leave Capitol Hill tonight, if the White House is not vacated by midnight tonight, if the Pentagon doesn't send word for the entire U.S. military-industrial complex to stand down immediately, we will find, oh, so many guns laying around on the ground. We will use them to bathe this nation in the blood of the revolution. Can you dig it? We have almost 20 mostly misguided, well-intentioned young suburbanite hip cats who may have never even been in a fist fight, let alone touched a gun, but they are prepared to pew, pew, pew all day and all night until a new, groovy, not-tripping nation is born and in sight. Can you dig it? You get it. Uh, this group. Ah, <laughs> oh, boy. I just, I just can't imagine what it's like to be around their meetings, right? It's just like all these, frankly, really soft, like some middle-class white kids 
They just want to be just so fucking hard, you know? The SLA uh, did really want to change some shit in a big way. They wanted to close all prisons and monogamy, destroy all other institutions that have made and sustained capitalism. They went big. Pretty lofty goals for a small group. Uh, they were dedicated to Marxism and to revolution. And as much as I mock them, they were actually pretty organized. They would come up with and carry out a plan to take not only an heiress to a massive fortune hostage, but they would take much of American media hostage as well. Okay. I think we know enough about the Hearst family, Patty Hearst, Donald DeFries, SLA, and the general vibe of the counterculture in the Bay Area in the 70s now. So we can get into our timeline. Let's jump into the timeline starting off in 1973 with the formation of the SLA. But before we do, it is sponsor time. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, what would you do with it? Work out, sleep, read a book, play Fortnite, call your mom, take judo lessons, finally watch all the episodes of Shameless. A lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time. But why? Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The bad news is that you're not going to get that 25th hour. But what you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time. This year, my health is more important to me than cranking out another stand-up special as fast as possible. So I canceled a tour, sacrificed that income, and decided to spend a lot of the time I just got back working out more, resting more, relaxing more, and enjoying time with family, friends, and just myself. And I'm so glad I did. I feel better than I have in a long time. And my BetterHelp therapist, Debbie, was very helpful in getting me to make the decision to pull back. Thank you, Debbie. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash TimeSuck today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash TimeSuck. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when you hear that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, you're probably thinking, what's the catch? Well, there isn't one, really. They cut the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. It's pretty simple. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans for just 15 bucks a month and no catch. All plans come with unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts over. And in addition to saving money, like over a 50% price drop from what I was paying before, the network quality, in my experience, is better than it was with my old service provider. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, Go to mintmobile.com slash timesuck. That's mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Thanks to Rocket Money, I canceled a membership to a gym I used to go to where I continued to pay a monthly membership for a couple of years after I stopped going. I didn't even recognize the charge. Rocket Money found it though, and it was canceled. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate lower bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with customer service for you. 
Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. That's rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. Rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. I still love peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, but I'd stopped eating them almost entirely a while back because the bread on top of the sugar from the jelly made me so sleepy. All those carbs causing me to want to take a nap after eating them. Enter Hero Bread. Hero Bread takes the fear of carbs out of bread, but still leaves you with that delicious bread taste. Hero Bread has zero to one gram of net carbs, zero grams of sugar, and it's high in fiber. It's also delicious and flavorful. The soft, fluffy experience you love when enjoying a savory breakfast burrito or mouth-watering cheeseburger. There is something for every craving, including sliced bread loaves, buns, and tortillas. And there are monthly small batch drops of indulgent favorites, like the two grams of net carbs Hero Croissant or the one gram of net carbs Hero Cheddar Biscuit. I had a loaf of Hero Classic White Bread delivered last week. Soft, fluffy, and delicious. Five grams of protein per slice, and it's high in fiber. And the best part? Hero Bread doesn't taste healthy. It tastes like bread. It's great. Don't give up on being a breadhead. Hero Bread is offering 10% off your order. Go to hero.co and use code TIMESUCK at checkout. That's TIMESUCK at H-E-R-O dot C-O. Thanks for listening to our sponsor messages. I hope you're able to dig into some of those great deals. Appreciate it. Please allow me to now hit this button. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a time-suck timeline. In the fall of 1973, DeFries and the Berkeley Radicals, uh, excuse me, as I just went over, formed the Symbionese Liberation Army. Uh, I didn't share the following little trivia nugget regarding their formation. Let me do that now. There's an interesting theory about DeFries and the formation of the SLA. I touched on it, but I want to expand on it. Uh, It's called the CIA Assassination Squad Theory. It takes the theory that DeFries was, uh, you know, some kind of government informant even further, building on the work of private investigator Lake Headley, who may have dug into the Patty Hearst kidnapping deeper than any other single investigator. Uh, Some authors and alternative media have developed theories that the SLA was a fully controlled CIA assassination squad with the Black Panther Party as its main target. Under this narrative, the SLA originated within California prisons where DeFries was sent as an informer to infiltrate incarcerated radical groups and then set up his own organization. Like all all of this was planned. This theory states that Donald DeFries was sent into prison by the CIA and that the Black Cultural Association was used to monitor radicals among both visiting students and prison inmates. The CIA created the Black Cultural Association at the Vacaville facility as part of developing the SLA, a phony left-wing group. Upon meeting radicals after his prison escape and before he was incarcerated, DeFries was known for his eagerness to sell firearms, explosives, and related, and related items, all stuff he found. Uh, but seriously, how did he get all this shit? His means of consistently acquiring weaponry has never been fully explained. Was he trying to set up sting operations? According to this theory, he was never sent to prison for earlier weapons charges, and he always had access to weapons because he was being given weapons by the CIA. Why? To gain the attention of the Black Panthers so that he could then infiltrate their group and then help the CIA take them down from within. Now, do I believe this? Not necessarily, but I don't think it's impossible. The CIA has done all kinds of crazy shit to take out groups. It it is deemed a threat to the U.S. government. They did have, you know, uh, black radical groups 
in the 60s and 70s in their crosshairs, for sure. And before that, 50s, 40s, you know, all kinds of stuff that they have done. Uh, if nothing else, this is an interesting theory. Just wanted to share it before I move on. Uh, after several months of weapons training at their safe house, the SLA committed its first revolutionary act on November 6, 1973. They ambush and murder Oakland School Superintendent Marcus Foster and seriously wound his deputy, Robert Blackburn. Why would they do this? Foster had just three years earlier become the first African-American school superintendent of a large school district in American history. He'd received national awards. Then he got shot eight times at the age of 50 with hollow point bullets that had been packed with cyanide. He'd been a, a, a national award-winning principal. The SLA shot mistakenly, uh, or mistakenly, excuse me, targeted him for his support of an ID system for Oakland students, an ID system designed to keep non-student drug dealers off campus. The SLA targeted Foster because they believed that he supported a measure to institute oppressive security measures at schools, including more police presence. There were, you know, this uh, the program that was built around these IDs. He did not. Foster did advocate initially for the IDs, but then rescinded his support weeks before he was assassinated. Uh, this crime to me shows how crazy Donald DeFries and his followers were. In the name of standing up uh, against white oppressors, capitalist oppressors, they kill a black man working his ass off to keep black students safe from drug dealers a guy focused on the education of black students. Uh, the SLA's crime announced the group as one capable of committing violent acts in the name of revolution. It also brought down the scorn of the Berkeley left, most of whom found the political murder of a black man by a black-led organization incomprehensible. If you follow the CIA kind of plant theory, then you could argue that this was done intentionally to, uh, you know, to just harass the black community, I guess. Uh, on, on January 10th, 1974, SLA members Russ Little and Joe Ramiro are arrested by traffic cops. SLA weapons and propaganda found in their possession. Fearing the house will be raided, Nancy Ling Perry sets fire to the group safe house and the SLA goes underground. Police find the safe house scorched but not burned down, uh, leaving a significant amount of evidence of what the group was up to and who some of them were. Whoops. I'm guessing Nance got her ass chewed a bit for that one. Just Nancy. What did, I, what did I say to do in the event that the 5-0 snatches some of our soldiers? Did I say to burn down the fucking safe house? Or did I say to kind of scorch some of it and leave the rest unharmed so that authorities are able to get important intel on our revolutionary organization? Uh, what's Patricia Hurst up to around this time? When 1974 began, Patty was only 19. She was smoking weed, sneaking out to rock concerts at San Francisco's Fillmore Auditorium, feathering her hair like Farrah Fawcett, Wearing blue jeans and t-shirts with no bra. My wife, Lindsay, and I both think that 70s look hot as fuck, by the way. Uh, Hail Lucifina. And pretending to relate to kids who were not raised by billionaires. Uh, she just transferred from her little private school to the state school that her family practically owned. She was engaged to uh, and living with Stephen Weed, her high school math tutor. Creepy sounding, I know. But he was only a few years older than her, according to reports from the 70s. I think he was like 43 or 47. Anyway, Patty's parents initially disapproved of her relationship with Mr. Weed, and Patty briefly had to pay her own bills, kind of, for four months, but not really, because she lived with Mr. Weed. She worked at a department store for four months and then reconciled with Daddy and then immediately quit her job because he agreed to uh, go back to paying for everything. Uh, and Stephen Weed was 26, not 43 or 47. And back in 1974, a 26-year-old dating the 19-year-old uh, wasn't actually that uncommon. Not condoning or judging, just pointing that out. Uh, with her family's money, she bought expensive artwork, Persian rugs, uh, pretty much did whatever she wanted. She was living the dream. She was going to class when she felt like it, shacking up with her fiance, partying on her parents' dime, and then all that would change on February 4th. According to a report prepared two weeks after the fact for the U.S. House of Representatives Committee on Internal Security, 
Patty's kidnapping went down like this. At about 9.20 p.m. on February 4th in Berkeley, California, two men and a woman forced their way into the apartment of Patricia Hurst. Entry to the ground floor townhouse apartment at 2603 Bien Venue, I don't know, Avenue, four blocks south of the campus was obtained by the female SLA terrorist tapping on the glass patio door and asking to use the telephone to report an accident. Miss Hurst's fiance, Stephen A. Weed, 26, opened the garden door and the woman pushed into the apartment accompanied by two black males, one armed with a rifle, the other armed with a pistol and perhaps also a rifle. Weed was beaten about the head and shoulders until semi-conscious and tied up. Stephen K. Swanaga, 21, a neighbor who heard the noise and ran into the Hearst apartment, was also beaten. Uh, Patty was taken into her kitchen, tied up and dragged out of the home, screaming and fighting the entire time. They dumped her into the trunk of a 1963 Chevy Impala. Some SLA members got into another car. The two cars sped off, firing shots at the apartment building as they rolled away. Six blocks away, they transferred Patty to another car, abandoning the Impala. The kidnapping is swift and violent, carried out in the words of one reporter with commando-like precision. Stephen Weed says to police that the kidnappers were so coordinated, they barely needed to speak to one another. That evening, Walter Cronkite reports on the kidnapping, sparking a national media frenzy. I mean, think about how big this story is. It's almost at the level of, of one of Obama's or Trump's kids being kidnapped by a group of domestic terrorists. It's, it's like if one of Bill Gates' daughters was kidnapped. Uh, it terrified people because it felt like if some group could kidnap Patty Hearst, they could get your kids. They could get anyone. Patty drifting in and out of consciousness in the car would say later that she expected her father to quickly pay whatever ransom these people wanted. But that would not be the case. The primary intention of the SLA was for more than just money. It wanted revenge against a class of people it saw as oppressors. SLA members placed her in a stuffy closet-sized room with a bare light bulb and a portable cot, no windows in the hot, poorly ventilated room. In addition to being placed in physically uncomfortable surroundings, Patty would later claim that members of the SLA began to psychologically torture her. As the days passed, they con uh, continually insisted that her parents loved their money more than her, that they would not save her, that they were evil capitalists who cared about their image far more than they cared about their daughter's life. Uh, DeFreeze, a.k.a. General Field Marshal Sin-Q, a.k.a. Captain Lucky Guy Bomb and Gunfinder, uh, led the others in harassing Patty. He insisted he'd kill her himself if his demands aren't met. What he doesn't tell her is that he hasn't made any demands yet. The Hearst have no idea what these assholes want. Uh, on the 5th, the day after the kidnapping, reporters gather at the Hearst family mansion in Hill Hillsborough, uh, that wealthy San Francisco suburb, to interview Patty's parents. And they do this every day for, for months. Also on the 5th, the FBI releases composite sketches of the suspects based on Stephen Weed and others' descriptions. Two days after Patty's kidnapping, on February 6th, a letter arrives in the mail at a Berkeley listener supported, uh, at Berkeley's listener supported KPFA radio station. In it, the SLA states that the group has Patty, but they list no ransom demands, just building a little bit of suspense. The next day on February 7th, Patty's father receives a letter from the SLA and reads it on live television. The United Federate uh, the United Federated Forces of the Symbionese Liberation Army, armed with cyanide-loaded weapons, served an arrest warrant upon Patricia Campbell Hurst. All communications from this court must be published in full in all newspapers and in all other forms of the media. Failure to do so will endanger the safety of the prisoner. Should any attempt be made by authorities to rescue the prisoner or to attempt or harm any SLA elements, the prisoner is to be executed. And at the bottom of the paper is written, death to the fascist insect that preys upon the life of the people. Of course, got to throw that little gem in there. A lot of high fives back at the new safe house. 
when they hear that shit, you know, on the news. I told you it would sound cool. You, you guys doubted my bug angle at first. Uh, but that insect line, oh man, that, that is sound as a pound and totally groovy. Uh, the family wouldn't hear again from the SLA for five days. While they wait, Patricia continues to be held captive in basically this closet. On February 12th, a message from the SLA is received in the form of a tape recording uh, sent to KFP or KPFA. Uh, the studio played the tape for anyone listening. I'll read an excerpt. Greetings to the people and fellow comrades, brothers and sisters. My name is Sin Q, and to my comrades, I am known as Sin. I hold the rank of General Field Marshal in the United Federated Forces of the Symbionese Liberation Army. The SLA has arrested the subject for the crimes that her mother and father have by their actions committed against we the American people and the oppressed people of the world. Randolph A. Hearst is the corporate chairman of the fascist media empire of the ultra-right Hearst Corporation, which is one of the largest propaganda institutions of this present military dictatorship of the militarily armed corporate state that we now live under in this nation. The primary goal of this empire is to serve and form the necessary propaganda and smokescreen to shield the American people from seeing the realities of the corporate dictatorship which Richard Nixon and Gerald Ford represent. In closing, I wish to say to Mr. Hearst and Mrs. Hearst, I am quite willing to carry out the execution of your daughter to save the life of starving men, women, and children of every race. And if as you and others so naively believe that we will lose, let it be known that even in death, we will win. For the very ashes of this fascist nation will mark our very graves. We are the crickets that hide in the shadows. The ladybugs that won't stop landing on you and don't really scare you per se, but can make you jumpy. And then the next time you feel something, you find yourself thinking, I don't want to freak out again because probably just another ladybug. But maybe it's a spider. No, ladybug. Or is it? I don't know. I'm not waited too long. And now, now in your head like a ladybug. God damn it, Peter. I told you to take the ladybug shit out of the speech. One insect reference is more than enough. We sound like idiots. Is the tape still recording? Okay, so I may have added the bug stuff, but the rest of the recording played as I read it, and there was a lot more to it. Uh, included in CQ's statement was a demand that the Hearst family give away millions of dollars in food to the poor and the needy. Next came the frightened voice of Patty Hearst saying, Mom, Dad, I'm okay. I'm with a combat unit that's armed with automatic weapons. And these people aren't just a bunch of nuts. They've been really honest with me, but they're perfectly willing to die for what they're doing. And I want to get out of here. But the only way I'm going to is if we do it their way. And I just hope that you'll do what they say, dad, and just do it quickly. And I mean, I hope that this puts you a little bit at ease and that you know that I really, that I really am all right. I just hope I can get back to everybody really soon. Later in the day, Randolph Hearst makes a public statement and addresses his daughter directly. He tells her that he's doing everything he can to get her out of there and to take care of herself. Randolph Hearst is in contact with the FBI, but he assures Patty and her kidnappers no one's going to bust in and start shooting. Cannot imagine how furious he must have been, like how much he must have wanted to use his money and influence to destroy anyone associated with taking his daughter. If someone took one of my kids, I would want to kill them myself. I wouldn't give a fuck why they did it. I would just want them to die. Uh, another demand soon followed. When Angela Atwood, another SLA member, informed the authorities, the Symbionese War, War Council has determined that communication between POW Patricia Hurst and her family will come only after the immediate creation of the necessary mechanisms whereby Russell Little and Joseph Ramiro can communicate via live national TV with the people and the SLA concerning the full scope of their physical health and all the conditions of their confinement. I love how they act as if they have a war council. By, by war cancel, do you mean Becky from Minnesota who has a Berkeley philosophy degree and considers not shaving her armpits a radical stand against the man? 
Or are you referring to Timothy from Seattle who hasn't worn shoes in two years and has been selling incense candles down by the ferry building before he joined the SLA? These people think they are. Uh, for his part, Randolph Hearst is willing to accommodate the SLA's demand. He must, ah, uh, God, he hate them so much. He said he'd do everything he could to get Russell Little and Joseph Romero on the air, the two SLA members who had been you know, arrested the previous month. However, the FBI says no. They're not willing to allow this. They think it's only going to feed the leadership's narcissism and make them even more dangerous. Sounds like the right call. On February 13th, speaking to reporters camped outside his house, Randolph Hearst uh, replies to the SLA's demands saying that they were impossible. By this time, the SLA's constant barrage of accusations uh, about how horrible the Hearsts are are beginning to take their toll on Patty. They've convinced her that her parents, uh, you know, are, are negotiating for her ransom, trying to spend less money. This thought makes her incredibly sad and scared. I mean, makes her think, do they, do they really care more about their money than about, you know, her life? And then things get worse for Patty. Reports come in of a heavily of heavily armed FBI agents raiding a house where they thought Patty was uh, being held. Patty felt her parents were recklessly allowing the FBI to risk her life. Right, her dad had said that they weren't going to do these raids. You know, while extending the media coverage and performing for spectators, uh, she wasn't entirely wrong about the performance part. Patty's mom had done this weird thing. Uh, she had taken to wearing black, all black, and speaking of Patty in the past tense. Her daughter hasn't even gone for two weeks yet. That's pretty strange. How pissed would you be if you were kidnapped and then like 10 days later, your mom's on TV, dressed in all black, talking about you like you're already dead? Uh, worse, her mom had ignored the SLA demand by, or one of the SLA's demands by accepting another appointment from then Governor Ronald Reagan to be a regent of the University of California. The SLA had told the Hearst uh, to sever their ties with Reagan the fascist. Patty said later, I felt like I could have killed her when she did that. My own mother didn't care whether the SLA shot me or not. Only 10 days in, Patty's starting to believe her family really doesn't care about her. Almost two weeks after her capture, on February 16th, the SLA releases another taped message for Hearst or from Hearst. And this one reveals a shift in her attitude towards her captors. She says, I am being held as a prisoner of war and not as anything else. I mean, I'm being treated in accordance with international codes of war. Also, since I'm an example, and it's really important that everybody understand that, you know, I am an example and a warning. And because of this, it's very important to the SLA that I return safely. And so people should stop acting like I'm dead. Mom should get out of her black dress. That doesn't help at all. Just hurry. Bye. I feel like she wanted to go off harder on her mom there. She's clearly mad. Mom, stop, t- stop making this all about you, you selfish bitch. I'm the one who's kidnapped, you sympathy whore. Uh, February 20th, 1974 marks Patty Hearst's 20th birthday. On a third audio tape, DeFreeze now demands that the Hearst spend $6 million on feeding the hungry. Uh, Randolph Hearst replies that $6 million is beyond his capabilities. Later, his representatives propose a compromise and offer to pay $2 million upon the immediate release of Patty Hearst and then an additional $2 million in January of 1975. The SLA, of course, rejects this counteroffer and Randolph Hearst announces that he will indeed be putting a sizable portion of his fortune towards feeding the hungry as they have asked. He quickly makes arrangements for $2 million to be donated to a local charity and creates a distribution plan called People in Need, PIN. In just four days, Hearst and others create one of the largest private volunteer organizations in the history of the U.S. Almost 4,000 people volunteer to help give out food. PIN director Ludlow Kramer expects that the program will be able to feed 100,000 people for 12 months with the $2 million. Still don't like these SLA assholes, but kind of cool that they got him to do this as opposed to just giving them the money. I mean, this is, you know, kind of some Robin Hood shit here. Uh, many in the FBI criticize Hearst's decision to give in to the terrorists. Hearst doesn't care. 
Uh, he's in the, it's my daughter and I will do whatever it takes camp. And I, I got to respect that. On February 22nd, the first disastrous attempt to distribute food for Patty's freedom occurs. Crowds form around the Hunter's Point distribution site in West Oakland. Soon, rioting breaks out, leading to dozens of injuries and arrests. In response, the Attorney General for California makes the following statement. In the future, every crime committed in connection with the kidnapping will be prosecuted. If it's done in response to extortion or kidnapping, we'll encourage the local district attorneys to prosecute under existing law. And if they don't, we will. After the food distribution, another taped statement by Patty Hearst is broadcast, and it reveals how her attitude continues to shift towards her parents and society in general. In this third statement, she says, Mom, Dad, I've been hearing reports about the food program. So far, it sounds like you and your advisors have managed to turn it into a real disaster. You said it was out of your hands. What you should have said was that you wash your hands of it. It sounds like most of the food is low quality. No one received any beef or lamb. Anyway, it certainly didn't sound like the kind of food our family is used to eating. <laughs> what the fuck? Oh, I mean, they got to be so sad for her. Obviously, they want her home, but also like, what did you just fucking say? Oh, you, oh I'm sorry. I, with four days notice, I, I didn't feed 100,000 people the way you preferred. The statement makes a lot of listeners wonder what the fuck Patty's up to. Rumors begin to spread that she has staged her own kidnapping in order to join the SLA. And a quick note on this rumor. Lake Headley, that private investigator I mentioned earlier, he did think before he died that Patty Hearst had met with Donald DeFreeze while he was in prison months before her kidnapping, like those other students did, and that she was in on this whole thing from the very beginning, that it was all staged. Why would she do that? Headley thought Patty pulled a colossal, spoiled rich girl gets real mad at daddy move, that she was furious with her father because she had dated a black man before she started seeing her math tutor, weird kind of creepy guy, and that her dad found out, confronted her, and strongly disapproved. And then she and daddy had a big blow up over her also having very far left political views, you know, i.e. socialist to the point of being communist that directly opposed her father's very far right staunch capitalist views. And then she pulled this whole thing off just to get back at him. Now, do I believe this? Not really. It's never been proven. But again, I kind of like the CIA stuff. I think it's possible, you know, to some degree. Also, uh, again, entertaining theory. I mean, how crazy would it be if she helped orchestrate this entire thing? I, I, I doubt it. I doubt she could pull off the whole thing and get away with it. Uh, and going forward, we should probably operate on the, on the premise that she did not help plan her own kidnapping. Uh, back to February 22nd, 1974. Reporters ask math tutor Stephen Weed for insight into Patty's state of mind. And he responds, I can see that she may actually be having her doubts as to, you know, from her point of view, it may look like we've made a mess of things. Previous to the last two months, I would say that she really didn't have a political point of view. I think that by the time this is over, she's going to have some sort of political view. Uh, thanks for that. Thanks for that, Stephen. Great insights. Uh, two years after the kidnapping, a Rolling Stone article would speculate that by degrees, her disillusionment with her parents turned into sympathy for the SLA. But more may have been going on with Patty than simple disillusionment. She'd been kept in that small closet room for a month now. She'd become mentally, physically, emotionally weak. She could barely stand up. To get out of the closet, she had to attend the SLA's daily political study sessions where she would have to listen to the SLA national anthem. Uh, they would read her statistics and quotes from like George Jackson and Russell McGee, two leftist writers, arguing that less than 10% of the U.S. population controls 90% of the wealth, that some people eat catered meals while others starve, that some can afford fancy lawyers while others just rot in jail, that some live off their inheritances while others squalor in despair. And all of that is true. No argument there. However, 
Would all of these evils be cured by communism? That's what kills me about these kind of arguments. So many people have starved under communist regimes. Uh, can the world, you know, suddenly be turned into one big idyllic kindergarten classroom where everyone shares their toys and eats the same snack and there's no more capitalism? Me and Bojangos don't think so. We think communism kills the incentive to innovate or to put in more hours, more blood, sweat, and tears in your competitor to make a better product that not only financially benefits yourself, but also improves in some uh, improves society in some way, like by creating more jobs. But the SLA, they thought some Marxist system could cure all of America's ills. And they pushed this belief on Patty Hearst hour after hour, day after day. And, uh, you know, many think that this completely brainwashed her after a month or so. In study sessions, uh, they attacked her family personally over and over again. They showed her a list of the current Hearst family holdings, nine newspapers, 13 magazines, four TV and radio stations, a silver mine, a paper mill, many prime pieces of real estate, on and on and on. They told her that she was clearly part of the ruling elite. How dare her parents create thousands of jobs and build an empire? What were they doing? Living the American dream? How dare her forefathers become more successful than peers? Uh, SLA members told Patty that nothing mattered to her parents more than money. They told her that her parents and the economic class they represented were to blame for her misery and the misery of countless others. And the only way uh, their love for money could be conquered was with guns and violence. They hugged her called her their sister, by all accounts, made themselves into her substitute family. They began to make not just a political connection with her, but an emotional one. And by the end of February, uh, she was more of an SLA member than a captive. Uh, within a month of being taken and held hostage, she'd also established a sexual connection with someone in the group. Not surprising, given that she was, you know, 20 and the group adamantly believed in free love. She'd begun sleeping with 23-year-old Willie Wolf, aka Cujo. Wolf was the closest to Patty in age and background, the son of a Pennsylvania doctor. He'd attended private schools his whole life, been a varsity swimmer, sports editor of the school paper. He'd spent a summer working with kids in Harlem, uh, in, excuse me, in Harlem, then spurned the Wolf family Yale tradition and enrolled in Berkeley, or at Berkeley, where he'd room with SLA member Russell Little and met uh, Sinkyu. On February 28th, the second pin food distribution uh, goes, goes on, has fewer problems than the first. Ludlow Kramer would later recall that the program gave away $30,000 worth of top quality food to Oakland's poor. Crazy. They actually did pull this off. Uh, they made a billionaire feed his city's poor. On March 4th, California Governor Ronald Reagan, having earlier predicted that no one would take the food from Penn, accuses the thousands of people who line up for free groceries of aiding and abetting lawlessness. And thousands of California's poor are, are undoubtedly heard saying super clever things like, fuck Ronald Reagan. Uh, on March 5th and 8th, the 3rd and 4th pin food distributions take place. The Hearst still have no idea where their daughter is. In a fourth tape released on March 9th, Patty Hearst is heard criticizing her parents saying, I don't believe that you're doing anything at all. What the fuck? What are you, what are you talking about? They're feeding so many people. They're trying. They're giving away millions. What a mindfuck for her parents. How do you even process your kid being kidnapped and then turned against you? Right? You're so happy that they're alive. But also, you got to be constantly thinking, what the fuck? All I ever did was give you an amazing home. The best childhood. Now I'm the bad guy. Uh, March 10th, newspapers announced that they will no longer print SLA communiques in full. Enough's enough. From March 10th to March 13th, Randolph Hearst secretly meets with Clifford Death Row Jefferson and other inmates who are SLA contacts at the Vacaville prison. He's desperately trying to find a way to reach his daughter. The discussion seemed to lead nowhere, at least not immediately. On March 25th, food is given away yet again on the Hearst dime to 30,000 people in Penn's fifth and final distribution attempt. 
On March 31st, Clifford Death Row Jefferson and other SLA contacts appealed to the SLA on behalf of Randolph Hearst to begin negotiations for Patty's release. For the first time in over a month, he's hopeful he's close to bringing his daughter home. On April 2nd, the SLA sends a note to the San Francisco Phoenix promising more details on the possibility of Patty's release within 72 hours. Then on April 3rd, less than two months after she'd been kidnapped, Patty shocks the world with the following recorded message. Mom, Dad, tell the poor and oppressed people of this nation what the corporate state is about to do. Warn black and poor people that they are about to be murdered down to the last man, woman, and child. Tell the people that the energy crisis is nothing more than a means to get public approval for a massive program to build nuclear power plants all over the nation. Tell the people that the entire corporate state is, with the aid of this massive power supply, about to totally automate the entire industrial state to the point that in the next five years, all that will be needed is a small class of button pushers. Tell the people, Dad, that the removal of expendable excess, the removal of unneeded people, has already started. I have been given the choice of one, being released in a safe area, or two, joining the forces of the Symbionese Liberation Army and fighting for my freedom and the freedom of all oppressed people. I have chosen to stay and fight. I have been given the name Tania after a comrade who fought alongside Che in Bolivia. It is in the spirit of Tania that I say, Patria o Muerte, venceremos. It is in the spirit of Tania that I say, I am the grasshopper, I will eat the seeds of capitalist greed. It is in the spirit of Tania that I say, I am the carpenter ants, carrying small twigs and leaf particles, and like, and the things like that, like back to my colony, like all other socialist ants working together, unlike, let's say, a greed-driven capitalist praying mantis, who seem to kind of do their own thing, and not really work with other praying mantises for the betterment of all mantises. You dig? I mean, unless they are mating, when have you seen mantises in pairs? When do you see those capitalist pig mantises using their creepy front leg claw top things to maybe pass nourishment from one mantis to another mantis? And God damn it, fucking Peter! We're so sick of this bug shit! Okay, obviously the, the Peter bug stuff was me again. Uh, and obviously, obviously the entire Hearst family is taken aback by this message. And also very fun to speak in that cadence with that kind of music in the background. Ah, would have been fun to put out these messages. Uh, and one of Patty's four sisters goes on record saying she was sure that Patty had been brainwashed by hearing one side of the story. Randolph Hearst expresses similar disbelief. It'll be Stephen Weed. Oh, I know it was a different time, but still kind of creepy math, Tudor McGee, uh, who would acknowledge that maybe there had been a real change in Patty during her captivity, saying, I am reconciled to the idea that Patty must have matured a great deal in the past two months. I just want to tell Patty that I love her as much as ever, and I think she knows that I can accept whatever she has chosen. Even though it may be hard for me, I can accept it. I feel like Randolph is hearing this thinking, damn, you really want some of my inheritance someday, don't you, Stephen? Needing to solidify Hearst's commitment to their cause and get some money to live off of, the SLA hastily plans a bank robbery and insists that Hearst participate in it shortly after this last message goes out. On April 15th, Patty Hearst and four members of the SLA are caught on security camera holding up the Hibernia Hibernia Bank at 1450 Noriega uh, at 22nd Avenue. If her family thought that they were shocked before, now their minds are really blown. Five of the bank robbers, including Patty, enter the bank while four remain outside. All make a getaway in two automobiles after firing several shots from automatic weapons, and they make off with almost $11,000. The bank guard would later remark that Patty seemed quite comfortable with the gun. She seemed, according to him, like she was ready to shoot anything or anyone who got in her way. Two civilians are shot during this robbery. Luckily, both will live. Of course, the big question on everyone's mind now uh, as this story is broadcast around the world, complete with security camera footage of Patty definitely joining in on the robbery, was whether Hearst was merely a witness 
or actually a perpetrator? And no one is as interested in this question as, uh, as much as the FBI is. The FBI has students at the Berkeley School for the Deaf read Patty's lips off of the security footage and find out she has said, I'm Tania, up, 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 up against the wall, motherfucker. Her parents must have been losing their minds at this point. <laughs> They've just witnessed their privileged daughter go from a kidnapping victim to a bank robber. Truly can't imagine. On April 23rd, eight days after this bank robbery, the FBI issues a wanted poster with pictures of Donald David DeFreeze, Patricia Michelle, uh, man, I hate her last name so much, Sol- Solzic, uh, Nancy Ling Perry, Camilla Christine Hall, and Patricia Campbell Hurst. Across the country, Americans continue to debate whether or not Hurst participated willingly or was coerced. In a sixth audio tape released on April 24th, Patty offers evidence of her full participation in the bank robbery. She states that at no time did her comrades have a gun pointed at her. She now refers to her family as pighursts. Mm, nice, pighursts. And to Stephen Weed as an ageist, sexist pig. She also says, as for being brainwashed, the idea is ridiculous to the point of being beyond belief. I am a soldier in the people's army. So she's in. She's real in. Uh, she's one of the most gossiped about people in the in the, in the country now. Dinner conversations around the U.S. are centered around, did you hear Patty's latest message? Oh, my God. Uh, a week later, on May 1st, staying just barely ahead of FBI agents searching for them, SLA members pack up their weapons and supplies, move from a Golden Gate Avenue apartment to Oakland Street in the Bayview District. The next day, on May 2nd, the FBI find the abandoned Golden Gate Avenue apartment. Just missed them. Two weeks later, on May 16th, an incident that will confirm to many that Patty was indeed now voluntarily a member of the SLA. Uh, Patty was sitting alone in a Volkswagen while SLA members Emily and Bill Harris enter a store in Los Angeles. Patty sees a fight break out between Bill and the store clerk. And to prevent the Harrises from being arrested, Patty shoots 27 30 caliber bullets into the storefront in rapid succession. What the fuck? Guessing her mom cried a bit that day. Uh, cried a bit more. The incident alerts the LAPD to the fact that the SLA is in town. And this is not good for the SLA. While the San Francisco PD was most used to dealing with petty crime at that time, the LAPD were a militarized force that had serious experience in both dishing out and dealing with violence. The next day on May 17th, 1974, the LAPD finds SLA members Donald DeFreeze, Willie Wolf, Patricia Soul, stupid name, Camilla Hall, Angela Atwood, and Nancy Ling Perry in a house in Compton. And a shootout ensues with SWAT team members. Rather than risk civilians being shot and because the SLA members refused to leave the apartment or excuse me, refused to leave the uh, the house, the police set the building on fucking fire with gas canisters. Holy shit. A TV reporter announces that anyone in the house must be either dead or dying. And the reporter is right. All six SLA members die in the Compton house. 1466 East 54th Street. And for a while, there is speculation that Patty is among the deceased. But that's not the case. The Harrises and Patty Hearst watched the shootout uh, on TV from their motel room near Disneyland in Anaheim. William Harris recalled later that Patty wanted revenge for the raid immediately. She wanted to kill some cops for killing both her lover and her leader and for killing her friends, people she now considered her family. She is full fucking SLA. Despite the death of their founder and leader and several key members, the SLA not over. On June 7th, 1974, a seventh tape recorded message is sent to the press. Patty Hearst offers a eulogy for those killed in the shootout. She proclaims her love for Willie Wolf and vows that the SLA will continue its noble fight. Math tutor Stephen Weed spends most of uh, June 7th um, probably punching and crying into, into his pillow. Uh, Bill Harris becomes the SLA's new general field marshal. Also in June of 1974, Patty Hearst is driven to New York 
and then to rural Pennsylvania, where she will hide on a farm with Patty, Bill, and Emily Harris for damn near a year. Her family has no idea where she is. In November, after months uh, of not hearing from Patty, Randolph Hearst now withdraws an offer of a $50,000 reward for her safe return. He must be so pissed. Does, does he no longer see his daughter primarily as a victim now? Does he see her mainly as a criminal? I wonder. Finally, on April 21st, so confusing. This, this story is so weird. Like, how would you, there's so little comparable stories to this. It'd be so tough to emotionally process all this. Finally, on April 21st, 1975, the SLA resurfaces. Four SLA members hold up the Crocker Bank in Carmichael, California. They enter the bank, announce that it's a holdup, tell everyone to get down on the floor and put their faces in the rug. Then a shot rings out. Myrna Asafel, a 42-year-old mother of two who is there to deposit church collection money, shot and killed by Emily Harris. Another SLA member announces that if the rest of the bank customers don't cooperate, everyone will get the same treatment as Myrna. And then two other SLA members jump over the counter, start grabbing cash. They kick people in the head, step on their faces, uh, continually shout profanities, you know, verbally abusing these people. Meanwhile, Patty waits outside driving the getaway car. During an interview held before her trial later, Hearst recalled her involvement in this robbery, saying, most of the time I was with them, my mind was going through doing exactly what I was supposed to do. I had been educated very well in what to do. I had been, you know, held in the closet for two months and, you know, abused in all manner of ways. I was very good at doing what I was told. I mean, they call it Stockholm syndrome and post-traumatic stress disorder. And, you know, I had no free will. It was considered wrong for me to think about my family. And when Sin Q was around, he didn't want me thinking about rescue because he thought that brainwaves could be read or, or that, you know, they'd get a psychic in to find me. And I was afraid even for that. It was a very strange group of people bound by, you know, the SLA codes of war. And they followed them very religiously. I was not inside the bank. Finally, five months after this robbery, Patty is captured by the police. On September 18th, 1975, SLA members Patty, Bill, and Emily Harris and Wendy Yashimura uh, are found at 625 Moore Street in San Francisco. Patty had been missing for 591 days, over 19 months. Cooperation between the San Francisco PD and the Federal Bureau of Investigation lead to her capture. FBI agents who have been staking out a house on 288 Presida Avenue in the Bernal Heights District on a tip spotted Bill and Emily Harris walking down a sidewalk in jogging attire. Bill was an easy takedown. Emily tried to run. They both are apprehended. At the same time, FBI agents Tom Patton and Tim Casey go up the back stairs to the Moore Street apartment where they can see the living room and kitchen through the Dutch door. They see Patty and Wendy Yashimura sitting at a table inside. Patty starts to get up and Agent Patton yells, FBI, freeze, I'm going to blow Yashimura's head off. Agent Tom Casey chimes in saying, Patty, don't make a move. Patty does not make a move. And Agent Patton goes inside and puts cuffs on her. Tom Casey asks Patty what she was doing there and she replies, I'd rather not tell you about it. It's a quote. She was being booked uh, and the officer asked her for uh, her occupation. She also replied, urban gorilla. I laughed so hard when I first read, I'd rather not tell you about it. That to me is such a rich kid thing to say to the police. Somebody who's had such a privileged childhood. Do you want to, uh, do you mind telling me uh, why I pulled you over today, ma'am? Mm, I'd rather not tell you about it. Upon hearing that Patty had been found, her family hired a well-respected California attorney, Terrence Hallinan, to defend her. And Patty struck Hallinan as a genuine SLA member. Hallinan had prepared a defense of involuntary intoxication. Patty would claim that she had been given drugs, uh, that the drugs helped convert her to their ideology. But Patty's parents didn't want drugs involved in the defense. They were too worried about their reputation. They said the defense should stick to duress and brainwashing and nothing else. Hallinan kept telling the family that wasn't a defense. 
but the hearse would not listen. On February 4th, 1976, Patty's trial begins two years to the day after her kidnapping. By this time, her defense team has rejected numerous offers by the prosecution to strike a lenient plea bargain because prominent attorney F. Lee Bailey, who had joined the defense team, uh, was, was confident he could win the case. The hearse, again, worried about their reputations, wanted Patty declared completely innocent of all crimes, so they go to trial. Judge Oliver J. Carter presides over the trial, and Patty is charged as an accomplice in the robbery of the Hibernia Bank. I couldn't say that earlier. Why? Patty herself uh, later admitted that she expected to be charged with murder. Although the prosecution had footage of her holding a gun at the scene of the crime, Patty pled not guilty. She claimed that she'd been brainwashed into acting against her own will and therefore could not be held guilty for what she had done. In defending his client, Bailey examined a team of witnesses, expert and otherwise, who testified that Hearst showed all the symptoms of Stockholm Syndrome, a rare psychological disorder in which a kidnapping victim begins to identify with their captors. It was a new term at the time of the trial, and we'll break down uh, you know, this term further after the timeline. Bailey also claimed that she suffered from POW Survivor Syndrome, known now as PTSD. Bailey said, that, uh, Bailey said that above all, Patty had feared for her life and cooperated with her kidnappers merely to survive but this didn't play well with the jury. Patty had been an SLA member from seven weeks after her kidnapping until she was captured, you know, over 19 months after her uh, an, an, you know, initial kidnapping. The first um, statements Hearst issued following the bank robbery in which she seemed to strongly identify with SLA's cause didn't set well with the jury. She had close personal ties to SLA members, especially Willie Wolf. When she was arrested, she, she wore a stone Olmec monkey face pendant that Willie had given her. She just didn't seem like someone under any duress. Also, even if Bailey could convince the jurors that Hearst had been brainwashed, that alone was not considered a defense under federal law. And then there was Dr. Joel Fort, a psychiatrist brought in by the prosecution who testified that he considered Hearst to be a prime candidate for true SLA membership. He felt that she had stayed in the group and committed crimes with them, definitely of her own free will. Fort stated that he felt that Patty had found a community in the SLA. He noted that her background was similar to many other SLA members who had come from comfortable upper middle class homes. Fort's expert testimony was incredibly damaging to Patty's defense. But perhaps the most damage was done by Patty herself. Time and time again on the witness stand, she gave monosyllabic answers to lengthy questions. She seemed disinterested. She invoked her Fifth Amendment right not to answer questions over and over again because she was afraid she might incriminate herself. She did it a total of 42 times. After it was all said and done, the jury debated for just 12, uh, excuse me, I thought it was minutes there in my notes. She debated, they debated for 12 very intense hours uh, before finding Hearst guilty of armed robbery and the use of a firearm to commit a felony. In the end, many jurors thought Hearst lied about her role in the SLA. One juror concluded that Hearst was lying through and through and that no woman would keep a love token from someone who abused her. Hearst's repeated taking of the fifth didn't sit well with jurors. One explained it was a real shocker. A witness can't just tell you what he wants to tell you and not tell you what he doesn't want to. Hearst was sentenced to seven years in prison for her crimes. She would serve just two. In February 1979, newly elected President Jimmy Carter commutes her sentence to time served. I'm sure having super rich capitalist fascist pig parents helped with that, uh, you know, little uh, favor. Then more than 20 years later, during the last days of his time in office, Bill Clinton grants Hearst a full pardon. Two months after her release from prison in 1979, Hearst marries Bernard Lee Shaw, a policeman who is part of her security detail during her time on bail. They will go on to have two children, Jillian and Lydia Hearst Shaw. No word on what happened to old Stephen Weed, oh, poor math tutor. He just kind of disappears from the story. Patty would go on to do a bit of acting, appearing in some feature films for director John Waters, who cast her in Crybaby, 
serial mom, Pecker, a dirty shame, and Cecil B. demented. After Patty's arrest, the SLA officially dies out. Everyone in the group ends up either dead, incarcerated, or goes into hiding, only to be tracked down at some point by the FBI and imprisoned later. Today, only one SLA member is still alive and in jail. The rest are either living free or dead. This, uh, this group changed some lives forever uh, in terrible ways. It never became the instru- instrument of lasting change that its few radical believers envisioned. A reporter once asked member Bill Harris after he'd spent years in prison, what did you accomplish? And he replied, nothing. Mainly what we accomplished is we got ourselves into jail. Uh, randomly in 2017, Patty Hearst took home two titles at the Westminster Dog Show, according to the New York Times. <laughs> Pretty random. Uh, Patty is also comedian, podcaster, actor, and TV host Chris Hardwick's mother-in-law. Chris married her daughter, actress, and model Lydia Hurst in 2016. Uh, Chris and I used to have the same manager and did some tapings together years ago. Small world. Uh, what else is Patty Hurst up to now? Don't know. 66-year-old mother of two keeps a pretty low profile. Now let's hop out of the timeline and take a look at the Stockholm Syndrome. Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. So what is Stockholm Syndrome and did Patty have it? Well, it's a made-up disease and no, she did not. Time now for today's top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five. JK, come on. No, uh, that'd be a super annoying ending to the show. Stockholm Syndrome is a psychological response wherein a captive begins to identify closely with his or her captors, as well as with their agenda and demands. Interestingly, the incident that Stockholm Syndrome gets its name from remains pretty obscure. Outside of Sweden, few know the names of those involved in the kidnapping situation that gave the condition its name. Let's, let's talk about it real quick. On August 23rd, 1973, less than a year before Patty Hearst was kidnapped, four bank workers, Brigitte Lundblad, Elizabeth Oldgren, Kristen Enmark, and Sven Sostrom, who worked for, oh boy, Severges Credit Bank in Stockholm, were taken hostage in the 32-year-old, uh, or taken hostage in or excuse me, taken hostage by, there we go, 32-year-old career criminal Jan Eric Olson. Uh, Olson was later joined at the bank by a former prison mate career criminal Clark Olofsson. Six days later, when the standoff ended, it quickly became evident that the victims had formed some kind of positive relationship with their captors. In one phone call from the bank's vault to the country's prime minister, Olaf Palm, uh, bank employee Kristen Enmark begged to be allowed to leave the bank with the kidnappers. When Palm refused, she said she was very disappointed with him and added, I think you are sitting there playing checkers with our lives. I fully trust Clark and the robber. I am not desperate. They haven't done a thing to us. On the contrary, they have been very nice. But you know, Olaf, what I'm scared of is that the police will attack and cause us to die. Somehow these six bank workers had gotten into their heads that the police were the villains, not the criminals. How? The hostages spoke of being well-treated by the robbers, and it appears that they believed that they owed their lives to the two criminals. On one occasion, a claustrophobic Elizabeth Oldgren was allowed to leave the vault that had become their prison, but only with the rope fixed around her neck. She said that at the time, she thought it was very kind of Olson to allow her to move around the floor of the bank. When he treated us well, we could think of him as an emergency god, Sven Seifstrom would later say, and the concept of Stockholm Syndrome was born. The phrase was coined by Swedish criminologist and psychiatrist Niels Biert, Niels Bjerat, maybe, Hing, ping, hing. It's hard to figure out the emphasis. And the American psychiatrist, Dr. Frank Oakberg, uh, intrigued by the phenomenon, went on to define the syndrome for the FBI and Scotland Yard. 
His criteria included the following. First, people would experience something terrifying that just comes at them out of the blue. They are certain they are going to die. Then they experience a type of infantilization. Uh, they, they become like babies. Uh, we're like a child. They are unable to eat, speak, or go to the toilet without permission. Small acts of kindness, such as being given food, prompts a primitive gratitude for the gift of life, he explains. The hostages experience a powerful, primitive, positive feeling towards their captor. They are in denial that this is the person who put them in this situation. In their mind, they think this is the person who's going to let them live. In short, psychologists believe that when a captor threatens a captive's life, deliberates, and then chooses not to kill the captive, the captive's relief at the removal of of the death threat is transposed into feelings of gratitude toward the captor for giving him or her life. And it can take only a few days for this to occur. Dr. Ockberg stresses that the, the true cases of Stockholm syndrome are rare. Uh, making identification complicated, there are no widely accepted diagnostic criteria to identify the syndrome, which is also known as terror bonding or trauma bonding. And it is not in either of the two main psychiatric manuals the uh, Diagnostic and Statistic Manual of Mental Disorders, or the International Statistical Classification of Diseases and Related Health Problems. Making identification even further complicated, some people who many would consider as having Stockholm Syndrome deny having it. Austrian Natasha Kampuch, uh, who was kidnapped as a 10-year-old by Wolfgang uh, Prickelpil, was held in a basement for eight years in a suburb of Vienna. Crazy suck connection here. She was trapped in the basement just an hour and a half away from where monster Joseph Fritzl had his daughter and his daughter-granddaughter's uh, son-grandsons trapped in his basement. And, and, and there were periods of captivity, uh, these periods of captivity, excuse me, overlapped one another for several years. What the fuck was going on, Austria? Anyways, when Natasha's captor died, she reportedly cried for him and subsequently lit a candle for him as he lay in the mortuary. But in a 2010 interview with The Guardian, Natasha rejected the label of Stockholm Syndrome explaining that it doesn't take into account the rational choices people make in particular situations. She said, I find it very natural that you would adapt yourself to identify with your kidnapper, especially if you spend a great deal of time with that person. It's about empathy, communication. Looking for normality within the framework of a crime is not a syndrome. It's a, it's a survival strategy. Well, whatever you want to call it, survival, strategy, syndrome. Sounds, sounds to me like Patty Hearst probably had it. She had a bunch of fellow Berkeley social activists surrounding her, telling her that her life had been a lie day after day, telling her that her family was what was wrong with America. I feel bad for her. Had she not been kidnapped, she never would have committed the robbery she did unless she planned to uh, be kidnapped, which we have no real proof of. What a story. Donald DeFries, after being arrested and released eight times after radicalizing and perhaps also being radicalized in prison by some Berkeley students, eventually formed his own army, a small army, but still an army, and they successfully took a newspaper heiress hostage. And DeFries was but one of many revolutionaries who came out during the 60s and 70s in America and fancied themselves a savior of the working person. But was he a savior? I mean, yeah, he negotiated some, some food to be given to the poor. But other than that, he just wrote and or recorded a bunch of corporations are evil and the poor are tired of being oppressed. And some people have way too much money. Just communist rally points. Did a bunch of cheerleading. What he didn't do, uh, other than get some meals dished out, was, was offer a better way. What exactly was your revolution going to accomplish, Donald? What if you did tear down the robber barons of the 70s? What if you did liquidate the bank accounts of the Hearst and other billionaires? Then what? What better system of government would you have built in its place? What kind of communist state would you have built? One like Stalin's, USSR, maybe one like Pol Pot's Cambodia, maybe one like Mao Zedong's China or Castro's Cuba or Laos. Laos has been communist. You don't hear about them a lot uh, since 1955. How's that worked out? 
not not well. If you value free speech and uh, if, if you like to not be randomly detained after some kangaroo court, you know, just fucking throws you in prison for some trumped up bullshit charges, uh, pull any national happiness index or global quality of life index up and, and take a peek at the top 20 nations listed. You don't see a lot of communist nations, usually zero. Why? If they're so great. Outside of the food extortion situation, DeFries and his army were just thugs posing as revolutionaries, right? They assassinated a gifted education administrator. They robbed banks, wounded innocent customers, killing one. Also tried to blow up some cop cars. We didn't, didn't even get into that, right? With police in them. Uh, and, and all for what? Because they didn't like the government. Don't like it? Go into politics. Try and change some things. That's what my son Kyler wants to do. I mean, he's 14, so it's what he thinks he wants to do, but he wants to make things a little better for the common man by putting more funding into public education. He wants to stop giving massive tax cuts to giant corporations. He wants to regulate frivolous litigation so we can all stop paying massive amounts of money to insurance companies and lawyers and be able to lower the price of goods and important services like medical and dental care. He's actually got a lot of good ideas. He's a little more socialist, a lot more probably than his dad. You know, he thinks some of my libertarian ideals are too radical, but I'd vote for him. Uh, what about Patty Hearst? What was her real role in all of this? Did she really stage her kidnapping? With nothing more than a PI's hunch and some hearsay he came across, I, I don't think we'll ever be able to prove that. Let's, let's say she didn't do it. Let's say she really was kidnapped. Can she truly blame Stockholm Syndrome for all of her actions? I don't think so, actually. Not 100%. Had she not you know, been kidnapped, um, you know, like, like I said earlier, would she have robbed banks? No, I highly doubt it. But if someone else had been kidnapped, would they have joined the SLA so enthusiastically? I have serious doubts. I think she was a very extreme leftist Berkeley College kid, also a spoiled rich kid who didn't know shit about how the world really worked, who was mad at daddy for coming down on her, for uh, having different political opinions and interracial dating. I think she was, you know, 20 years old and surrounded by extreme leftist radicals telling her to burn everything down, uh, you know, and, and burning everything down was burning mommy and daddy's empire down. I think a sort of teenage rebellion, she was only 19 when she was captured, played a huge part in how all of this played out. Had the SLA kidnapped some 40-year-old, Nah, no fucking way. I don't think they join up with him later. I, I think, but you know, I've never been kidnapped. So easy for me to say. In the end, had it not been her fascist pig parents hiring a hotshot lawyer, she probably would have gone to prison for a lot longer than she did. Even, even though her parents did fuck up her defense a bit. After being in prison, uh, she sure shit didn't maintain her SLA communist ideals. Uh, those ones that she ranted about in recordings, you know, sent to the press, did she? Now she's, she's part of the best in show Westminster dog crowd now. That's about as bougie as it gets. I'm guessing she has, uh, you know, better one time when I was 20 stories than her fellow purebred dog trainers. All right, that's all I got. Uh, let's wrap up now with today's top five takeaways for real this time. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, the Hearst Castle. I'm fascinated by this place. 115 rooms, 38 bedrooms, 42 bathrooms, theater, beauty salon, giant indoor Roman pool. 68,500 square feet. And it's only one of several homes built on a giant sprawling property complex. Looks like something built for a fucking Roman emperor. And this complex originally sat on 375 square miles of beautiful private land. I get why that nerd, Stephen Weed, tried to stick around and wait for patty cakes. That is some serious wealth. Number two, I doubt many saw Donald David DeFries as ever leading a group of revolutionaries before he actually did. He had a shitty, arm-breaking dad. He got mixed up in crime at a young age. He became obsessed with guns and explosives. He quickly had three kids. He uh, also quickly abandoned. He got arrested a whole bunch of times, finally went to prison, and then formed a communist group of revolutionaries and then kidnapped the daughter of a billionaire. 
before, you know, burning alive during a shootout with police at the age of only 30. Number three, after failing to get their buddies out of prison, the SLA used Patty as a bargaining chip to have thousands of poor people fed. The Hearst family paid out millions to form the organization People in Need only to have the attempt backfire into riots and have their daughter Patty criticize them for not providing enough beef or lamb. 1974 was a terrible year for Randolph and Catherine Hearst. Number four, Patricia went from a rebellious rich girl to a hardcore beret-wearing machine gun-toting child of revolution. She was sentenced to seven years in prison, but her sentence was commuted by President Jimmy Carter in 1979. And since then, she's led a pretty quiet life. Number five, new info. William Randolph Hearst, Patty's grandfather, was the basis for a movie that has topped more best films of all time lists than perhaps any other film, 1941's Citizen Kane. And Hearst hated this movie. The thinly veiled, unflattering biography of a wealthy tyrant was produced by Orson Welles and put all of Hearst's character flaws out there for the public to see them. His greed, his moral weakness, the effects of his poor behavior on his friends and family. Even more loathsome to Hearst and his allies was the portrayal of Kane's second wife, a young alcoholic singer with strong parallels to Hearst's mistress, the showgirl-turned-actress Marion Davies. After catching a preview screening of The Unfinished Citizen Kane on January 3rd, 1941, the influential gossip columnist Hedda Hopper wasted no time passing along the news to Hearst and his associates that the film was obviously about him. And Hearst then used his leverage to get the film's advertising out of the press— Hearst newspapers also went after Wells, accusing him of communist sympathies, questioning his patriotism. Uh, Hearst went on to forbid his media holdings to advertise the film in any way whatsoever. Many other Hollywood moguls, uh, who for the most part didn't like Orson Wells, finding him rude and arrogant, supported Hearst. Louis B. Mayer, co-founder of Metro-Golden-Mayer, even offered to pay RKO Pictures $842,000 in cash if the studio's president, George Schaefer, would destroy the negative and all the prints of Citizen Kane. Just throw it away, burn it, get rid of it. Schaefer refused, threatened to sue. Though it would be nominated for nine Oscars and ultimately be heralded by critics as one of the best, if not the best movie of all time, Hearst managed to destroy its premiere and initial profitability. Many theaters would not run this movie when it came out out of fear of being punished by Hearst. And Orson Welles said that when he watched the premiere in the theater, he sat in an almost empty theater. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Hearst, man, they had some power and some influence, but not enough to get their daughter away from the SLA. Not, not in a timely fashion. The kidnapping of Patty Hearst has been sucked. Such an odd, unique story. Hope you found it as interesting as I do. Very hard to find a similar tale out there, right? Rich kid gets kidnapped by a group of domestic terrorists, then joins the gang, helps him rob banks. Crazy. Uh, thank you to the Bad Magic Productions team for, for helping making time suck every week. Queen of Bad Magic, Lindsay Cummins, Reverend Dr. Joe Paisley, the script keeper, Zach Flannery, Bit Elixir, Logan Art Warlock Keith, Bad Magic Baroness Cade Keith running badmagicmerch.com and the socials. Uh, please join the Coldly Curious private Facebook group if you want some community to go along with this podcast. Uh, thank you to Liz Hernandez, her all-seeing eyes, for moderating it. Thanks to Beefsteak, who is now our official ambassador of fun over on Discord. Uh, congrats to Sergeant Awesome for currently leading round two of our new Time Suck trivia game available only to Space Lizards on the Time Suck app. 5,068 points, hundreds of points uh, uh, you know, ahead of second place. Very impressive. It's going to be hard to beat but there is still more trivia to come in round two. Uh, it doesn't end until Monday, September 7th at 3 p.m. Pacific time, and that's when round three begins. 
next week on Time Suck, shit is going to get real crazy. Uh, we're going to return to both California and the 1970s to examine someone way worse than Donald DeFreeze. We return to the annals of true crime and suck on a legit psychopath, the vampire of Sacramento, Richard Chase. It's going to be like an Albert Fish, Yahim Kroll, Ed Kemper, Chikatilo kind of suck. We touched on this maniac and the FBI behavioral science unit suck. Uh, Chase has been called the poster boy for the FBI's disorganized killer profile. Sadistic, random, so extreme. Chase didn't just kill, he mutilated. He was a cannibal, plus an obsessed consumer of blood and a necrophiliac. He's fucking triple crown of psychopaths. In a month-long murder spree in the mid-70s, it, it, like, it was like something out of one of Clive Barker's nightmares. He butchered a total of six men, women, and sadly even children in the most heinous of ways. When police searched his apartment, they discovered that nearly every surface within it was saturated in blood from the walls to his eating utensils. Then there were the contents of the refrigerator. Uh, Richard Chase said he needed to kill to save himself. From what? Uh, the answer is pretty hard to believe. Very hard to believe mostly because uh, they don't make a lot of sense because he was out of his fucking mind. Join us next week for a suck on a truly dark and demented mind in a real monster, the Vampire of Sacramento. And now let's get balls deep into today's Time Sucker Updates. Updates. Get your Time Sucker Updates. Our first update comes from Super Sucker Alexandra Caesar, who just wants to send some positive thoughts and or prayers the way of a hurt friend, sucker, space lizard, and solid meat sack. Alexandra writes, Afternoon, Suck Master Supreme. I just got some pretty awful news that a friend, Nathan Fleck, has been in a pretty bad motorcycle accident. While we still don't have all the details, we know he's been through surgery and is currently in a medically induced coma. He has a lot of good people by his side. We are all rooting for his recovery, but it'll be a long road ahead of him. He's a diehard time sucker space lizard, as well as a huge fan of your stand-up, maybe more so than I am. I uh, LOL. I was really hoping we could give him a shout out and just let all the suckers send him uh, as many positive vibes as they can. He's a prime example of a great meat sack who is always there for his fellow humans. If this gets to you, thank you for the read and keep on sucking, Alexandra Caesar. Well, how very kind and thoughtful of you, Alexandra. Nathan, I hope you can hear this, man. Hope you're fighting with everything you've got. Get the fuck out of the hospital before you catch some COVID. Get going on your rehab so you can get back on that bike and hurry up. You have awesome friends like Alexandra who are uh, tired of worrying about you. Seriously, we're thinking of you. Hoping you can bounce back hard and quick like Reverend Dr. Pacey's horsecock. But for real, man, uh, get better. Get better soon. Thoughts are with you. Top shelf sack, Karsten Anderson now has a Skinwalker Ranch sighting to share with us. Interest is peaked. Karsten writes, Hello, Master Sucker. I just listened to the Skinwalker Ranch suck and would like to talk about an experience I had with a Skinwalker while I lived on the reservation. I was driving to a lady's house with my companion. I was on an LDS mission and saw a strange dog-like figure standing in the street. We exited the car, walked to the lady's house to talk with her. We did so for about 15 minutes. This dog was standing there looking at us the entire time. As we were leaving, the lady said, be careful. As we got back in the truck, we noticed the dog or whatever the hell it was left. We turned the corner on the side of the road. We saw the same dog-like creature getting up off its all fours. Its eyes turned a weird green yellowish, yellowish color. I feared for my life. We drove off as fast as we could. I know most people don't believe my story, but honestly, I saw what I saw. I don't care what others say. Hopefully you can share this story in the upcoming suck. Give a shout out to my sexy wife, Maddie, for helping me through these hard times. Keep sucking the sweet suckness. Thank you, Karsten. And hello, Maddie, aka Karsten's Lucifina. May you forever tempt him. That story's intense. Holy shit, man. 
fuck did you see? Did you see uh, that dog that Terry Sherman sucker punched? Seriously though, uh, there are so many stories like yours. So I hope uh, the Skinwalker Ranch suck made you feel good about that in a weird way. I mean, what the hell is going on out there? Uh, I kind of want to see what you what you saw, and I also kind of never, ever, 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 ever want to see it. Hail Nimrod, and uh, and I hope whatever's going on that's not good turns around soon. Now we have another Skinwalker sighting coming in from a curious cult member, Joel Schmuland or Schmuland. Oh, Joel, I'm gonna call you Joel. Joel S. Uh, it's kind of a, a Skinwalker sighting. Maybe not a Skinwalker sighting totally, but he did see some weird shit. It scared him while he listened to the Skinwalker suck. Anyway, Joel writes, my hands are still shaking. I was listening to the Skinwalker Ranch suck on my way home from my shift at the hospital around midnight. The part started playing about Terry and his encounter with the Skinwalker Wolf. The eerie music was playing as you dramatically explained what happened. As the story came to its end and the music started getting louder, a deer jumped out into the road and I let out an audible screech that I am not proud of. The deer was far enough away that I did not hit it and kept my composure while driving so no harm was done, except that I need new pants. It's as if the aliens knew the exact moment to send out the deer. Anyways, thank you, Dan, and the universe for scaring the Nimrod out of me. Praise Bojangles and hail Lucifina. All turned out well. Uh, Joel, uh, Joel, you painted the picture uh, beautifully there. Fucking deer. Yes, they're cute, but damn it, they are a menace on the road. Because you never know when they're going to pop out. You know, I'm always on the lookout for their little beady glowing eyes at night. So many deer in my neighborhood. We just got a new fence, and I hope it keeps those assholes out of the yard. It's crazy how much they can shit. So much shit that my dogs like to eat. And then the deer shit makes them shit more. It's a shit cycle I do not enjoy. Uh, thanks for sharing that spooky moment. Uh, now imagine if one of those deers would have just stood up on its hind legs and maybe roared at you. Just gone full Wendigo. It's a fun thought. Uh, now for a hateful message from a stupid Polish monster. Cameron Cochran, this terrible subhuman writes, Dear Master Sucks Suckinator, before I take a nice polite shit on you, <laughs> I'd like to say that I started listening to Time Stick a few months ago while searching for podcasts. I've loved your comedy for years, but you've helped me survive the monotonous slog of work this year, so thank you for that. With niceties out of the way, time to get into it. This week's episode on Skinwalker Ranch was grating to listen to. As a native Utah, born and raised in Salt Lake, and having recently moved across the country to Maryland, I'm naturally very protective and fond of our beautiful mountains. So when I opened up Time Suck to see a close-to-home topic, I was excited. Until I wanted to drive an ice pick through my ear. They are the Uinta, not Uinta, and Wasatch, Wasatch, fucking, these fucking stupid words. Wasatch, not Wasatch. It is insane to me that you said Duchesne just fine. First try, but not the mountains for the whole episode. Anyway, just wanted to give my favorite mush mouth a little hell on behalf of my favorite home state. As a side note, I'd love for you to talk about something Polish soon. To force you to acknowledge the Polish people's value and bad attitude. Bears carrying artillery, undefeated cavalry for hundreds of years. Vitold Pilecki, super badass. Keep on sucking. Cameron, just another dumb Polak. Listen, Cameron, I have no excuse uh, about the mispronunciation. Just so you know, I, I, I did add a phonetic guide to all of those words. However, between my own regional dialect and the proper dictionary.com pronunciation, not always matching the colloquial pronunciation. Yeah, I fucking blew it. Also, I am very impressed that you were able to send this message. Whoever wrote it, whoever, to, whoever was able to take your Polish grunts and gibberish and translate it into real human words and then write those words down, man, kudos to them because that could not have been an easy job. JK. Uh, seriously, though, we do need some more Polish topics. And, and there are a lot of awesome Poles out there. We could talk about some awesome Polish people. Or what about a Polish serial killer? There's got to be some. Why haven't, why haven't we set some true crime in Poland yet? 
I can think of some additional slander I can, I can throw your people's way. Uh, Hail Nimrod, I'll keep on trying to nail those uh, fucking stupid regional words. Stop ruining my mouth, Lucifina. Be gone, temptress. Now for some contrarian thoughts on socialism and also on whether or not we should judge someone by the norms, the times they lived in, or by some universal and timeless standard of human decency. Always good to take in contrasting opinions. Super sucker Joe Messina writes the following. Hey, Dan, love the show. My wife introduced me to your podcast and stand-up when we met almost four years ago. I still listen. She does not, but I still love her anyway. Uh-oh. Uh, I have been in and out of stand-up for years myself, just never got around to making a career of it. Now I request that you check to make sure Bojangles' leash is secure because I'm an avowed socialist. Ugh! I know, I know. I hope we can still be friends. Uh, actually, I appreciate your show because I know I can count on you to challenge my beliefs in good faith, which is something we can all benefit from. I have a specific topic I want to bring up about the Disney suck. So I won't even go into the socialist nitty-gritty. I won't, for instance, I love this, touch on the fact that Walt's wealth seems to have actually destroyed his family and that that much wealth should never be concentrated and his grandkids wouldn't have to rely on inheritance money if we all had well-funded universal social programs like single-payer healthcare and universal basic income or how the modern Disney Corporation's near-monopolization of the entertainment industry is harmful and indicative of the new Gilded Age or the consequences of the type of union-busting Disney did. I will not be bringing up any of those in this email. That was beautiful. What I wanted to challenge you on is the notion that we can't judge people by modern standards and have to look past a lot of their negative beliefs and actions because it was of the time. Most likely, meat sacks have had great beliefs and abhorrent beliefs at all times throughout all of history. Good point. People who make the history books like Disney are presented as so impressive for their wealth and power they acquired that we must look past their unfortunate but of the time beliefs, or at best, we view them as complicated. Rich, famous, powerful people get to be complicated. Poor, powerless people are forgotten. The truth is not everyone in the 1930s and 40s thought like Disney. That's why we're talking about him. If that's true of his innovations, it can also be true of his beliefs and practices, and it is. Take his meeting with Reifenstahl. I don't think it's reasonable to write off this as just business. Much like I was just following orders, this reasoning is too often used to justify evil acts or associations. If we compare Walt to Universal Studios founder Carl Lamley, I have no guess on that pronunciation, I guess still. Someone in a similar position at the time, uh, Walt's actions become even less defensible. Carl helped, uh, hel Carl helped around 300 German Jewish families, which came out to over 1,000 people, escape Nazi Germany and immigrate to the U.S. He gave many of them jobs at Universal, which both made it easier to get approved as an immigrant or refugee and to get on their feet in their new lives. This wasn't easy to pull off, but we're talking about extraordinary people who stand out. I'm sure many average Joes and Jones had attitudes about Nazism similar to Walt's and many similar to Carl's. I'm not opposed to considering the context of a time period and why a historical figure would have held the beliefs they did, but some things are not acceptable no matter what time period you're in. Slavery abolitionism in what is now the U.S. dates back to the 1600s, which is when the North American slave trade began and northern states started banning slavery soon after the Revolutionary War. That tells me there is little to no excuse for pro-slavery stances, especially by the 1800s. The southern states made Thomas Jefferson remove his condemnation of slavery from the Declaration of Independence. Aaron Burr was a fervent abolitionist. Where's his fucking musical? I guess Burr isn't the catchiest title. Side note, Jefferson and Burr both owned slaves. Now that's what I call complicated. It's okay to admire the work Disney did, but it's also okay to unequivocally say the bad things he did were bad. This attitude of that's just how people used to think not only excuses the crimes of historical figures, but encourages ageism in the form of ascribing bad ideas like racism, sexism, xenophobia, capitalism, agree to disagree, <laughs> only to people of certain age groups. For generations, people have said stuff like, we just need to wait for these old, out-of-touch assholes to die out, then we'll sort all this out, which erases the fact that there are a ton of young racist bucks out there and plenty of sweeties who are 60 years young or more still doing what they can to make the world a better place. 
Anyway, all this really amounts to is that we shouldn't deify historical figures because in the end, they're all just human. When we put people on a pedestal, we give them too much power and that never ends well. I'll even jab my own side here. This is what gets you communist, communist tyrants like Stalin or Mao. It was Marx's stupid idea that communism should give temporary totalitarian power to one person in a transitional phase, and then that person should give up said power. You know how humans are, oh, you know how humans are always willing to give up power? We see the same problem on display in the U.S. decades, uh, in the U.S., sorry, decades of executive overreach have led to Trump and the presidency in general having way too much power for one person. Back to Disney, his wealth and power led to an exploited workforce and a dangerously monopolized monopolized entertainment industry. Disney accounted for 38% of the box office in 2019 and 8 out of 10 or 80% of the top grossing films the same year. Even if you do love the free market, I don't think this is how it's supposed to work. One company controlling everything with no competition. I have a friend who did union organizing work for Disney workers, and I can assure you, much like most US, U.S. corporations, the House of Mouse fights tooth and nail to give as little as possible to the workers who generate their wealth. Corporations have too much power in this country. I think I'll give it a rest there. I hope you'll consider some of what I said here because I believe you're at your best when you're questioning everything. Thanks for the show. Keep on sucking. Wow, so much info, Joe. Where do I begin? You make a lot of good points about how you, you shouldn't give someone a pass on doing something bad just because they did a lot of good. And, and that it's not good to deify historical figures. Uh, however, I also don't want to become part of today's cancel culture and ignore uh, the, the good you know someone has done because they did some bad stuff too. You know, because we all have. Not that that's exactly what you're saying. Uh, but with this Walt and Lenny Reifenstahl, uh, did Walt have Lenny Reifenstahl in his home and give her a tour of his studio? Yes. Was she a Nazi sympathizer? Yes. Had the Holocaust begun yet when she came over? No. Was the focus of her films hatred of the Jewish people? No. Have you ever had someone over to your house who may have been racist? Probably. Maybe a member of a political party with other racist members? I bet you have. We can't know what everyone else thinks. Even our friends, are you greatly familiar with the political leanings and racial opinions of everyone you've ever had over? I doubt it. Ever find out something later about someone and be like, holy shit, I had no idea so-and-so was racist or misogynistic, xenophobic, you know, or whatever. I have. No one's perfect. Not that that's what you're saying. Uh, but I also hope that I didn't suggest that I thought Walt Disney was perfect. I just refuse to subscribe to this current notion of, oh shit, uh, so-and-so had slaves or so-and-so cheated on his wife or so-and-so was racist, sexist, whatever. So fuck everything they did. Yes. Certain heroic people do rise above the times they live in, and that is beyond admirable. But I bet we could find something wrong with most of those people, too, if we looked hard enough. Maybe they stole something. Maybe they spread some, you know, bad rumors. Something. To me, Walt Disney being friendly with the Nazi sympathizer in 1938 isn't necessarily a big deal because I don't know how well-versed he was in international politics. Now we can look back at that year, look back at what was happening in Germany, and be like, what the fuck? But did Walt know at the time exactly what was going on? Maybe, but maybe not. My son Kyler gets annoyed with me for not knowing what's going on all the time politically. And I tell him, I don't have fucking time. I work on breaking down stories, running a business a good 60 hours plus a week. I try and stay current, but there's, you know, there's only so much time and there's so much news out there. Walt was a busy dude, busier than me. He was managing a huge company, cranking out so many productions. Maybe he didn't really know who the hell Lenny Reifenstahl was. I doubt her first words to Walt were, hi, I'm Lenny and I hate the Jews. Heil Hitler. Highly doubt it. So I think you see the point I'm making here. This is why I don't like to deconstruct heroes too much and to nitpick on certain things. I like heroes. I like to be inspired. I expect them to be flawed. You mentioned Walt getting so much more attention than his workers, and I just think he should. Is it harder to launch a business than it is to hold down a job? I've done both, and I think it is. Not that there isn't a lot of value in holding down jobs, but and he didn't just launch a business. He launched an empire. Why do so many of us applaud that? Because it's very rare. 
Uh, it's rare to hit over 60 home runs in a season of Major League Baseball. That's why guys who do that get paid a lot more than the guys who don't. They bring in more fans. More people are impressed. Rare and difficult to be so much better at basketball than everyone else. You can average over 30 points a game for a season in the NBA. Whoever does that is going to get paid a lot more than somebody who averages two points a game. 30-point dude sells more tickets. It's exciting to watch. And it's more exciting to talk about someone building one of the biggest media empires in the world than it is to talk about someone clocking in on a 95. Does it mean the empire builder is a better person than the factory worker? Fuck no. Definitely doesn't. Does it mean they're leading a more unique and therefore intrinsically more interesting and suckworthy life? Uh, it does, to me. Should Disney be able to monopolize the entertainment industry? No. I'm a capitalist, but I'm also a big fan of antitrust laws. I'm a fan of regulated capitalism. I'm a strong proponent in government-regulated capitalism, which I know goes against some libertarian views. Uh, and wow, you've given me a full podcast worth of points to address here, Joe. You're clearly a very smart dude. I so appreciate you listening to a podcast hosted by some with very different political leanings and a different historical perspective than you do. I love contrasting opinions. I don't want to live in some kind of, you know, psychophantic echo chamber. That was a big word I tried to pull off. I think I got 80% of it. Uh, there's too much of that going on right now. People just doubling down on beliefs they've held for years but never really examined. People surrounding themselves with people who only think exactly like they do, and I fucking hate it. I hate mindless tribalism. I hate mindless nationalism. I hope this show always has listeners like you. I'll be thinking about your words for quite some time. Already have been. Hail fucking Nimrod, Mr. Messina. We can get along. We can get along just fine. Thanks for the updates, everyone. Thanks, time suckers. I needed that. We all did. Thanks for tuning in to another suck. Appreciate the continued ratings and reviews. Uh, the, the suck still grows, despite my mush mouth. I haven't lost you all yet. Uh, new Is We Dumb comedy podcast on Wednesday. Man, thanks for the feedback. It's been so fun. Uh, we're so happy that so many people like it. Having a blast with Mr. Joe. More scared to death Tuesday nights at midnight. Having fun with the creeps and peepers over there. Try not to get kidnapped this week, meat sack. And if you do, uh, don't start robbing banks and striking out against fascist pigs. Instead, I don't know, maybe just, maybe just keep on sucking. We need to, we need to go up on high and go up to the mountain and grab from the fascist fucking pigs and take their money and just hand it out to the poor. We need to drive cool cars and wear fucking leather jackets with fluffy kind of, I don't know, like, uh, what, like, a, is it like a pilot type? I don't know, but it's like a cool looking shit here and have chains and silk shirts and bell-bottom jeans and platform fucking shoes with goldfish in the motherfucking heels.